0: Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it that we've read. I'm Michael Lutz. And I'm Cameron Kunzelman. So if you are just listening to us for the first time, uh, a little bit of background on what this show is, Um, every episode, Cameron and I have read a book that is in some way uh, related to game studies. It is possibly a classic of the discipline. Um, sometimes it's a new release that we are both interested in. Uh, and we talk about it, discuss its ideas, contextualize it, uh, and try to give you some idea of uh, you know what the book is about, why it might be useful, uh, and other things you might want to look at, maybe, if you find it interesting. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about an older book. Uh, I guess class, well, this book is contentious for a lot of reasons, but I think it would probably be called a classic. It's at least part of the canon. It is, uh, Janet H. Murray's Hamlet on the hollow deck, which was published originally in 1997 by, uh, Free Press, and then published again, or I guess republished uh, the following year by the MIT Press. Uh, and Janet Murray herself is currently, I think this is current, right? She is the uh, Ivan Allen College Professor of Digital Media and the Associate Dean for Research in the Ivan College of Liberal Arts at Georgia Tech. But Yeah, as far as I know, that's true. Okay. She's, I, she's I, still across town. Yeah, I think that
1: this book is... In a lot of ways, you know, I agree that it's contentious. Mm-hmm. I think that people have strong opinions on this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's foundational, I yes. think, you know, like whether you disagree with it or agree with it. Um, in 1997, 1998, there were not a lot of books. Well, there were not a lot of books that penetrated into like the discourse, yes. <laughs> the capital D discourse, <laughs> that were about taking games. Uh, seriously, both on an academic side and in kind
0: of a public conversation-y way. Right, and one of the reasons um, I wanted to cover this book particularly now uh, is that in my field, which is not game studies primarily, right, I come from literature, uh, this is a kind of uh, um, a touchstone work for what people, and this is very this has changed since I started kind of uh, grad school, I think, Um, but it was very much a touchstone for what academics in my discipline thought about when they thought about what do people who do English scholarship do with game studies? Um, Yeah. So like I would say, oh, I'm interested in games and they would be like, oh, so you want to, you know, do Hamlet on the holodeck or something like that. Um, So just this, this was always the thing that uh, my kind of scholarly interest was being measured against. Uh, And uh, there's good reason for that. Uh, I, as you said this book is contentious um i would say probably i've read it a couple times um the first time i read it many many years ago i was probably uh i was like very taken with it i was like oh this is this is what i want to do uh we can get into this um in more detail later but uh murray is a very very much a big ideas writer here very much pie in the sky there's a sweeping kind of trans-historical work going on here uh that i'm very sympathetic to Um, and then, you know, like years later, I sort of soured on it and I was like, no, I'm going to be like more of a ludologist or something like that. Um, and my present, uh, place on the book is kind of like, this is very nice. There are a lot of really interesting things here. There are also things I really don't agree with. And then there are some ideas that I think actually, um could be really interesting and vital and uh they are not necessarily the things that i think have come forward from this book that have been its legacy uh so that's kind of my background relationship to this uh just putting that on the table there
1: yeah i didn't read this book until yeah i similarly i've read this book a couple times i've even taught chapters out of it in uh, game studies courses that i've taught And I didn't read this until I came to graduate school. Um, I had read kind of whatever the next generation of game studies were, what we might call properly like formational texts for the field of game studies. So Mia Consalvo's cheating or, Mm -hmm. Uh, unit operations uh, by Bogost, like those types of books that were written in kind of, um, I don't know, structural response to this book, like this book necessarily shows up in all of their citational apparatuses, but none of them are saying like, uh, well, we have to build off of Murray here and, you know, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So they're in conversation, but it's already by the time those books come along, this book is already kind of receded into a previous era. And I think part of that is this kind of big ideas um, framework that you're you're talking about, the way that she writes about games and the way that she talks about narrative. Um I think that if there's a big, you know, a big statement about this book or kind of like a big thesis statement that is not necessarily surfaced anywhere, um it's that computers fundamentally change the way that that narrative works, mm-hmm. uh, both on a production level and on a reception level. Um, And she's rarely using those terms, right? We don't see, you know, what I would call like traditional cultural studies terms show up. We don't see Stuart Hall. And I really want to get into some of that. We don't see um, (laughs) some weight around reception, like who interacts with narrative rarely comes up in Mm -hmm. this book. Uh, And I really want to kind of talk about that when we get there. But all of that is to say that, yeah, I, I I think that there are interesting things that appear in this book that kind of drop out of the field of game studies. Um, and maybe it's because they're seen as too simple, or maybe it's because they're seen as like being production-focused. There's a, I, I'd forgotten that so much of this book, especially in the back third, is really about like how do you operationalize? How do you build things with this kind of general theory of narrative that she's putting forward?
0: Yeah, no, that was um, something that I also had never really realized in reading it is that so much of this book compared to what we think of as game studies now is just here is like so much of this book is her saying like here is a way that a game might work right here is a type of story that might be um sort of encoded in such a way based on how we know games work uh and it's uh like a lot of attention is paid towards sort of like you know what? What makes a believable NPC uh, a kind of like nuts and bolts kind of not even really nuts and bolts because she doesn't even get that specific, but sort of um, you know like what what do you have to keep in mind if you're writing an NPC to make it believable? That sort of thing. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, what kind of framework would generate the best kind. And then she like does some pretty specific like up and down analysis of like different systems, so like Minsky comes up and things mm-hmm. like that that we'll talk about later in the episode. But yeah, I, I I guess I'd forgotten. And maybe why this is why the book caught on in such a way for and has had such a long life. I mean, the book is 20 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it intersected with a bunch of different audiences and and kind of made a case toward all of them, and you know, I, and I, I think that we'll talk about this uh, a few times too. But <laughs> it has a general disdain for like capital T theory people. Yes, like yes. it has it in the postmodernists and the poststructuralists. Right there, there is this very. Um, I don't know, just like eye rolly, like oh, I can't believe these people. Right, very um, much a
0: mid '90s uh, English and cultural—well, not maybe not cultural studies, but like in English, there was you know you hit the mid '90s, and everyone's kind of like, ugh, theory that's over. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: And, and, and yeah, like, you know, the end of theory collection comes out, you know, in the early 2000s, um, which is like big for media studies and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, so I get it. Like, I understand it. But you can also see how that like does some rhetorical maneuvering for the computer scientists or the Mm -hmm. practitioners in the audience who are like, yes, finally, someone hates these people who tell us how our work works. Right. I don't have to think
0: about Foucault and discipline.
1: Exactly, and I, I think to our benefit, um, reading this book, uh, we're we're both practitioners to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you are you are very well known for your, um, you know, digital narrative constructions, yes. games, quote my, unquote games, my my
0: postmodernist <laughs> hypertext. <laughs> yeah
1: um and you know i've i've made one or two things in my life yeah. so um yeah I'm, I'm kind of interested to dig into those sections with you uh in particular since we can kind of talk both languages yeah um because you know i'm a practitioner but i also have a very high threshold for uh, <laughs> my postmodern you know yes. whatever um so right. anyway
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess I mean, let's get to it uh, with the introduction. Um, actually, we really covered the introduction. I think uh, you made you made the case more explicitly, I think, even than she does. I would say the the closest thing we get to a thesis statement in the introduction is, um, and I'm quoting here uh, from page thirteen uh, in my edition: "The more we cultivate uh, the computer." As a tool for serious inquiry, the more it will offer itself as both an analytical and a synthetic medium, which is her way of saying uh, the computer has the power to fundamentally change the way that we interact with and think about and construct narratives. Um, and something that's worth saying here,
1: too. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. But another thing, we can oh. read the same book.
0: What? Yeah. Uh, so you you have read the most recent edition. Oh correct? oh yes yes yes. I was like, wait a minute. Uh oh. Now things are getting really multi form. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I, I didn't realize this until I was reading your notes. Um, but you have read like the 2016 re updated edition or something. Yes like that. yes.
0: So that should be. Um, I, there's very little, really, um, for me to add on this front. I'll, I'll mention it when it's necessary, but uh, I did read the most recent version that she did in... Uh, she did an update in 2016 where she essentially um, went through and she reread each of her chapters. Um, and then each of the chapters is followed by a, a kind of little, very brief, usually like four pages uh, at most... Um, reflection on some of the claims that she's made and she'll like uh offer examples of things that have come out since she wrote the book that uh to fulfill the promise of things she's talking about in the chapter or like gesture toward it or expand it in ways that she didn't anticipate um and so on and so forth um and most of the time this just sort of ends up being a kind of like you know here's what panned out here's what didn't here's kind of an interesting little list of games that you might want to play if you find some of these things interesting Gotcha. I didn't get
1: any of that. No. <laughs> so, I'm reading, like, a paperback that I purchased in, like, 2008. So, um, I'm very curious, like, when... So, when I start, like, saying things that are then accounted for in the 26th edition, please let yeah. me know. <laughs>
0: um,
1: anyway, sorry, but yeah.
0: Yes. Uh, so, that's kind of kind of her introduction. Um, and then her 2016 update is actually, uh, just to, since we just brought it up, um, she kind of reflects on uh, the reception of the book itself. Um and as we've already said this it was kind of contentious she said one thing that happened is a lot of creators uh that she worked with loved the idea that she posits um in this introduction of uh shakespeare as a hacker bard uh mm-hmm. which is a, a kind of recurring feature in the book that we'll probably discuss uh at length but um shakespeare gets invoked here and obviously this is important uh and interesting to me uh for, for reasons that are like i study shakespeare um, shakespeare is constantly being invoked as kind of um the figure uh of the author who makes the medium kind of like lock into place uh as the person like he is you know the the touchstone of literary value and so on and so forth um and so he gets deployed here as a kind of metonym uh for uh the 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 idea that a medium can come into its own uh, that something like so, things have finally progressed to the point that uh, this new medium has matured, and it is it is creating art with a capital A. Um, so creators really liked this idea, right? That Shakespeare was a kind of hacker bard, that he was uh, intervening in a kind of messy, fumbling uh, uh, industry that was trying to make sense of itself, and it's very, very unclear if this is the theater interest industry. Um, or, you know, the poetry industry or, like, the print industry, uh, because Shakespeare worked in both. uh, And even within Shakespeare studies, it can get contentious about which one Shakespeare saw himself as more a part of, um, and then consequently, like, which one is he most important for the history of? Um, So uh, the creators really like that, though, right? That idea of um, someone or something can come in and like make games matter or make digital narratives matter. Um, but then also the, uh, quote unquote ludologists. Um, so like the Nordic game studies folks, uh, really, really rake her over the coals for this book. Uh, because uh and we'll touch on this very very briefly i think when we get to chapter five but essentially she has this uh reading of tetris where she says tetris has a story um and this gets caricatured in uh nordic game studies uh or like ludologists i don't think they're all like just nordic game studies folks but um like (laughs) well uh, well, let's actually say so you know like
1: espen arseth uh mariku eskalinen uh, Mm -hmm. please please uh forgive my pronunciation uh i'm from the south <laughs> um, and then like Yes for Yule. Although okay. I think that there there are degrees of uh, hostility to right. to her argument that probably Eskalinan is the 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 most hostile
0: and then down to like genteel disagreement. Right. <laughs> with um, Yule right. or something. Right. So these are people who sort of like broadly speaking, when they're, when we're talking about games, are more interested in like systems and modeling and rules. And we've already talked about Yule and we can see how, um, he, he is, he is not at all like unconcerned with narrative, but there is, um, a much more kind of uh, grounded sense of like okay these are like games are kind of struct like they are rule structures um and i want to kind of like pick these pick these games apart and figure out how they work based on that um and then see how narratives can kind of meld with that rather than necessarily doing what uh, murray is doing here and thinking with narrative first essentially hmm um so that's that's her kind of update right is she's just like yeah wow some people really liked this book and some people really hated it and at the end of the day that is definitely true <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know what yes like <laughs>
1: uh actual factual information yeah I, I there's a there's a quote on chapter 10 that i thought was very confusing but also um encapsulated for me a lot of what this book is and i guess that when when I say page numbers now, I guess I'll just start saying like in whatever chapter, since mm-hmm. the pagination of the new volume I'm assuming, is yeah. different than my pagination. Probably. But um, she says this book is an attempt to imagine a future digital medium shaped by the hacker's spirit and the enduring power of the imagination, and worthy of the rapture our children are bringing to it. I have no idea what that means, like at all, (laughs) like even a little bit, but, but I think it's emblematic of a certain kind of rhetoric that is in this book Mm -hmm. of, and and, like why those people, or maybe accounting for the difference of why some people really enjoyed it and why some people did not. Like that is a sentence that is blue skies is all hell, right? It's like, this is the thing that you don't get, but your kids are going to fucking love angry birds bro right <laughs> uh, that's our one sorry i, I wasted our one f-bomb in, yeah in, in, in this episode. <laughs> it's um, okay it was well used um but but right like that's the that's the feel i think that is just a, a, a kind of a core tenet of the way that this book plays out that there are yeah. a lot of places i think that i'm very unhappy with the claim that is made but it's not unhappiness because like the claim is wrong it's unhappiness because it is uh pitched out to a kind of rhetoric that that is not, you know, I don't know, not the kind of way that I would prefer to read the book.
0: Yeah, it's it's a little too utopian for my tastes, I would say. Yeah. Um, And I'm part of that is maybe like, I don't know, it it was the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) People could feel differently about where things were going. Uh, And in some ways, the other thing that's really interesting about this book um, is that there's a lot of stuff that she really doesn't, she doesn't clock right there's a lot of developments that happen that she doesn't really see um but to her credit there are a lot of things that she does kind of anticipate um and so the the book ends up being really interesting to me in that way uh it basically um in some ways right she like predicts the culture of fan wikis yeah right yeah uh and um so this, the, the book itself is just such a strange document because uh, it has all of these things that sort of turn out to be true, and she's very, very positive about them, but also we happen to live in the world where these things are true. And it ain't a great world. <laughs> There's a lot of bad stuff going on. In fact, you have... Is, this, is it in the first chapter, uh, which we can now segue into, but you, you marked this in your notes. I thought it was great. Um, uh, so the first chapter basically focuses on uh, it's called Lord Burley's Kiss. She begins uh, discussing a an episode of Star Trek Voyager. Um, so <laughs> there's a holodeck but it's going to take us a while to get to Hamlet. Anyway, the mm-hmm. first the first chapter is all about um, kind of what we might call like new media anxiety um, in the ways that this shows up historically in various documents. Um, and so the, the episode of Voyager that she's starting out with is uh, one where Janeway is living or like not really living right but the 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 simulation that she is playing on the hollow deck is one uh where she is kind of a, a Jane Eyre type governess um in a gothic uh you know english country estate so also just going to note this right off the bat uh murray is uh showing her cards a little bit in that she is by training uh a victorianist um so victorianism uh and victorian authors recur uh throughout this book with um some importance um i'm not saying that's yes. bad i'm just saying like uh you know this is it's just it's interesting to see that happen right in the same way that when i talk about games i talk about shakespeare she talks about the brontes um anyhow what happens in this episode is uh, some sort of alien creature um starts like materializing the fantasies of the crew members and of course like no one can tell what's real and what's fake and everyone is disturbed and um it's a it's the type of story that we know right it's the story that um we see in many many ways and she puts it as a kind of, quote, the nightmare vision of a future totalitarian state uh, has been replaced by the equally frightening picture of a violently fragmented world organized around cyberspace where ruthless corporations, secret agencies, and criminal conspiracies struggle for control. And your your side note uh, in your note there was, ah, this happened. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, yeah, right. So, so she. it's really interesting here, like, you can tell that her strength and her uh, interest is is literature. Right. Yeah, like, she likes books. Uh, mm-hmm. for, for the amount of, like, you know, games and new media art that show up in this book, just as many, if not more, are novels. And so, like, this first chapter kind of threads that needle, right, between the Victorian and, and Regency-ish kind of border text stuff that mm-hmm. you're talking about here and that she talks about at the beginning. And then she talks about uh, Huxley and Bradbury, like these kind of dystopian visions. And then she talks about, right after the the quote you just read, she talks about Neuromancer mm-hmm. um, and cyberpunk. Like there, There's a way she sets up this kind of weird science fictional
0: hellscape in the first chapter in order to do nine more chapters of how we fix it. Right. And this is actually, this ties in um, to, I think, her orientation as a literature scholar uh which comes up again and again uh in her, because her idea of like literature and what literature does and i think also probably like what art does generally um is uh her the, she says this at various points in various ways right but the space of art as murray understands it like its sort of social function is to uh articulate ideas that make us nervous or uneasy or like things that we're afraid of right we take all of these kind of ugly emotions or like these bad situations that may happen or could happen to us um and we compartmentalize them in in fiction and in some ways right we uh like use fiction as a kind of exposure therapy in order to either like Recognize that the problem is not as bad as we think it is and that it can be solved or like in order to deal with the problem Right art is essentially therapeutic. Um, That is kind of its salutary function here Um, and mm, I Maybe disagree with that in in broad strokes, but it's important to note that uh, this is this is what Murray thinks is kind of the best case scenario for all this stuff. Yeah, I mean it's kind of—I I mean
1: it is the the classic Aristotle argument about how tragedy works, right? Mm-hmm. In, in its most basic form, right? You you go to the theater or you go watch a movie, or you read a book or whatever to cathartically process through the feelings that you are experiencing. And of course, those feelings, I mean, this is an illusion out of Aristotle now, but the, the follow through argument is that those feelings are social. They are determined by where you are in the world. They're determined by the world around you, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, like she she's presenting a very, very classical style argument about the function of art. Um, but in conversation, I think maybe this is, like, the payoff for Chapter 1 in a general way, right? She says, like, you know, that the, the picture that you just painted about how she sees art, like, that is true. But when new media emerge, we have to think of them in a fearful way. Like, like mm-hmm. our, we have more anxiety about new media as it comes along than we do... Uh, comfort in using it to explore things, right? So we're comfortable with novels in the 1980s, and so we are able to write cyberpunk novels that have fear of computers built into it. And eventually we have... Uh, you know, works of text that are, you know, works of art that show up in computers that have fear of whatever the next thing is, which is like, you know, biohacking or something like that. Right. Um, and so we get, end up with a game like Soma, right? That fundamentally is about the trauma of recognizing that human consciousness is nothing
0: other than like uh, a bunch of content in a container, something right. like that. Right. Um, yeah. So there's that. I, I should also like, just in case anyone listening is not familiar with star Trek, we should probably explain like what the hell the hollow deck is. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> just, I realized like this is, I just kind of took it as a given. Um, so mm-hmm. in the star Trek series, starting um, with uh, the next generation, also just to note, I am not a huge star Trek fan. I've just watched enough that I know what it is. Uh, so if I say something wrong, do not send me angry emails about, about it. Um, anyway, starting with next generation, uh, you get this really incredible, wonderful plot device uh, that uh, allows a lot of variety in your weekly television program. Um, you get the holodeck, which is the part of the Starship Enterprise where it's—I mean—it's presented as just kind of like this big empty room. Um, but uh, technology is so sufficiently advanced in the Star, Star Trek uh, universe. Um, I might have said Star Wars a couple of times while I was talking. I don't think you did. I think you said Star Trek, but... Okay, I was going to say, I like Star Wars more. I'm just going to go on record, so (laughs) send me angry emails about that. (laughs) Um, But Star Trek, so you go into the holodeck, and you can uh, basically inhabit fully another world. Um, Like, it is holographically projected... uh, Um, like sort of the computer, like, you you know, responds dynamically to your actions. It looks like a full total simulation of whatever story you want to experience. Um, and one thing that she notes, uh, I don't know if she does it quite this early, um, but very often, uh, there are particular crew members who use the holodeck for particular purposes. So as we started with um, Captain Janeway in Voyager, uh, she is playing kind of this gothic romance. Um, and then in the next generation, um, Captain Picard uh, likes to play hard-boiled detective stories. And Data, the android, likes to play um, Sherlock Holmes-style Victorian London mysteries. Um, so. Uh, these, you know, from from a um, television production schedule or viewpoint, I should say, uh, these are great because it allows you to have kind of like neat little episodes that discard the normal normal uh, show format. Um, and then, as uh, Murray points out, uh, they're all kind of weird genre jumps for for the normal Star Trek uh, show. So they become like. A, an actual, like, fictionalized simulated genre world within the larger genre world that is Star Trek. Um, and that's kind of... The holodeck itself is kind of the... And she admits this, right? The 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 absolute epitome, the total, like, you know, greatest possible thing that could come out of digital narrative. Um, this kind of ability for a computer... Uh, to just present this fully realized fictional world that you can wander around in and essentially do whatever you want and also, like, stop it when something goes weird, right? Uh, They always say, computer, freeze, program, when something goes wrong. Um, And then if it's one of the episodes where they say, computer, freeze, program, and nothing stops, then you know it's going to get good because that means (laughs) something's taken over.
1: Oh, no! Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a single episode of of either of these Star Trek series. Wow.
0: Okay. Yeah. So anyway, that's the holodeck metaphor. And it's just something to keep in mind, uh, I think, as kind of it's it's something um, that I think shadows the the argument that uh, Murray makes because it is kind of this impossible dream of of what technology could do with narrative. Um, yeah, I,
1: I, I know in the past couple episodes, I've used the word horizon and. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've never explained what I mean by that, but the word horizon gets used in kind of like academic theory kind of stuff to talk about like the, you know, the same way the horizon functions, it's the absolute visible limit of what it is. And as you move towards something, as you walk toward the horizon, it doesn't get any closer. Um, and the holodeck is the horizon for this kind of digital narrative storytelling device, right? It is the maximal possible version of that in the same way that say a uh, full communism is the horizon line right for uh, the communist utopia is the horizon line for marxism or mm-hmm. um you know uh, the nightmare hellscape is the absolute horizon
0: line for an objectivist <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, uh, you know things like that <laughs> right and this actually to some extent right this takes us into uh, chapter two which is called harbingers of the hollow deck and basically um what she is doing here is uh, kind of she posits the the hollow deck as a uh, you know your horizon line, um, and then she kind of starts working backward through uh, literature and culture and finding sort of antecedents for it. And I don't mean antecedents in kind of a neuro sense of like here are some science fiction stories where other people had hollow decks, but sort of um, types of stories that show up in a film, in um, fiction that. Uh, represent like the star trek episodes um characters entering into and intervening in uh, sort of simulated narrative worlds um and kind of the the ways that this thing has been imagined uh sort of historically um one of the things she talks about actually is uh so she she trots out this uh the term uh incunabula uh, which comes from medieval studies and to some extent early modern studies, uh, which is in history of the book and things like that. The incunabula is uh, its Latin for swaddling clothes, uh, and it is used to refer to all printed books. Uh, that is to say, you know, books printed on the printing press in Europe um, prior to the year fifteen oh one. Because, uh, and uh, this I think maybe deserves a little more weight than she gives it, right? She just kind of pulls out uh, the incunabula um, term and she says, you know, we are in the incunabula stage of, of uh, digital narrative, right? We're in the swaddling clothes. We're still figuring things out. Um, and we're working toward this moment where uh we'll know what we'll know what printing is and we'll be able to actually make books um now the thing about that term really uh is that it is as all kind of namings are um extremely arbitrary right uh there's a dutch humanist and physician um named hadrianus unius um who in, like, the mid-1500s basically just says, like, okay, <laughs> everything printed before 1501 is in Cunabula. We know how the printing press works now. Which he is not wrong in that... Um, you know, the sort of like the sophistication of the printing process and the things that people were doing with it or the things that people thought to do with it had um, developed. Uh, like, of course, they had, but also, like, there wasn't just like, there wasn't really a moment where you could see that switch. It took some guy writing uh, kind of like to his circle of learned friends being like, prior to 1501, books were just like weird baby clothes, and now we're really <laughs> off to the races. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind, uh, because it suggests, um, you know, these kinds of movements in narrative—or not in narrative, but in sort of media development and technology development—that she's in some way striving toward. Um, like they—you don't know them when they happen, right? You—you you can't recognize them. Um, it takes a kind of like weird, like sort of arbitrary moment of distinction that everyone just suddenly kind of falls in line with.
1: Yeah. And and we don't the the argument would follow then, right, that there is some kind of um or that printing doesn't change stages again after fifteen oh one, right? Right. Like, like, that's the other side of the argument is that that once a medium has reached maturity, then it's all just iteration from there. It's not transformation. Right. And this is a kind of a pitfall of the argument that she falls into multiple times. It shows up again in the last chapter where mm. it's basically like, well, once we figure it out, people are going to be really good at at taking the quote unquote mature art form and doing things with it. Right. Um, Right. It's just stable. Yeah, it's stable, and there were thirty. I mean, there's thirty, thirty serious years of computational media creation before this book is published. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Like the, the computer it's it been around longer than the the VHS tape, <laughs> <laughs> and and like home movies had had like appeared and become a massively possible thing for so many more people uh, right. in the middle, right? There are a lot of movements that are kind of what we might think of as like post-war media transformational movements, and by post-war I mean post World War II, mm-hmm. um, that kind of economic prosperity moment uh, for very particular countries in the in the wake of World War II. Um, but we have this explosion of consumer products, and with that we have the explosion of the quote-unquote democratization of media creation, right? Like. Mm-hmm. It's not just making movies is no or making photographs is no longer the sole ability of people who are highly trained and have an immense amount of capital. It becomes more and more accessible. And all of that is also happening at the same time that that this digital media creation is is occurring and none of that shows up here. Um, And so there are ways that narrative, you know, and and I'm just putting that here in this kind of harbinger's chapter to to get my, to plant my flag (laughs) to some (laughs) degree, but narrative is radically, radically changing over this time period in basically every medium. And that is something that is wholly not included
0: in this book. Right. And so um, some of the things that she talks about, and I sort of, I I noted this, I thought this was very interesting, right? So here are some of the things. So actually... I'm going to back up and say she introduces this idea called the multi-form narrative or the multi-form story which is uh her kind of way of talking about uh what we might normally think of as a non-linear story or an interactive story um so for her multi-form uh is the better term because it encompasses the fact that uh like even like one playthrough is just as valid as another playthrough in a game right there they might be different stories but they are both stories that get pulled out of this game that could go in two different ways um so it's not an issue of whether or not it's like linear or non-linear or whatever uh it's just like there is it is a narrative that could have multiple configurations and um of course like what she one of the things she cites here is uh borges's garden of forking paths uh which uh If you're not familiar with it is this uh very famous kind of uh mystery dramatic thriller by uh, an argentinian writer named jorge luis borges um, who was very uh, notably obsessed with uh, ideas of infinity um, among other things and it is a story about uh, how choices necessarily block off other choices, but uh, it sort of invokes the idea of parallel universes in order to um, suggest kind of the the consistent reproduction of alternate realities uh, based on choices that were or were not made and kind of the weird sublime terror that ensues when you realize that there are many, many possible configurations of the world in which you live and which you made different choices that might not have brought you to the moment where you currently are. Um, And added to this, of course we get uh, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, a classic (laughs) multi-form story that is of course about uh, a George Bailey wishing he would never be, would have never been born. And so an angel shows him what the world would be like had he not been born and intervened in various people's lives. Um, And then also back to the future uh, (laughs) uh, about going back in time and sort of uh, you know, taking part in the story of your own creation. Um, And then Schwartz, I don't remember Schwartz's first name, but this is a story um, in Dreams Begin Possibility, which is about, uh, like, this dreamlike story of watching a movie of one's parents, like, at the moment they first met. So, again, very much a, a kind of back-to-the-future kind of moment. Um, and one thing that I noticed about a lot of these stories uh, that she she pulls in, they're all kind of about, like, the thrill or, like, the potential thrill of non-existence. Like, this, <laughs> like the multi-form story, like, the way that she kind of, like, starts, like, laying down this term, um, for whatever reason, is very much bound up in all of these stories that pivot on the idea of, like... What were it what would the world be like if I didn't exist?
1: Yeah yeah there's like a, a an awesome self-annihilation to all of these right? right and and so it's not lost on me that she then goes to Groundhog Day which <laughs> the, the culminating you know like comedy slash horror scene of that movie is in the middle where he's like constantly reliving the same day over and over again and he kidnaps Puxatani Phil and gets into a giant tractor trailer and then drives it into a mine <laughs> and, and dies in a fiery death right like right like that is a movie that also takes all this kind of extreme pleasure in nothing mattering and everything kind of being um, random and being trapped in a loop. She doesn't pay any of that off, right? But there's something weird to that. Yeah. and also like i wrote in my notes right edge of tomorrow is a movie that uh, you know what then became live die repeat is a movie that literally is its comedy is based on watching tom cruise die over and over (laughs) again and then happy death day which is very it's just groundhog day but with like a teen murder you know a college girl murder story and it also is like very 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 funny on purpose um and so, like, like, humor never shows up in these kind of examples that she's using, but they that ends up being, like, if if postmodernity is is a thing here that really latches on to multi form stories and does something with them, they do it with a sense of irony and a sense of
0: fun and things like that. Then from these kind of media, um, or these types of stories, she starts moving into uh, the first examples of... Uh, stories that take the kind of multi-form approach but don't necessarily end up well maybe not necessarily end up in this uh, nihilistic place where um there's a kind of like set world and certain choices are inevitably going to like push you forward and other choices are going to like send you off into oblivion because she starts talking about things like um uh Well, she has this odd little like moment, actually, where she transitions into this by talking about sort of increasing uh, sort of technological capability with television, with IMAX screens, um, sort of this uh, heightened. There's there's a McLuhan, a Marshall McLuhan-esque vibe here where um, she is kind of positioning technological sophistication uh, as in some way um, kind of more engaging to to the audience or to the reader to the viewer or whatever um in a way that is maybe similar to like what we think of as games as participatory right as something that like asks you to like make a choice or to move this character or what have you um And then she moves into kind of the beginnings of online hypertext and interactive fiction. Uh, Not really the beginnings, right? But I guess, well, actually more the beginnings in terms of it being online. But she talks about The Spot, which is this weird, like, softcore erotic blog archive. Um, It's like a web soap, I guess. Um, I don't know anything about this. I don't know if there's, like, an archive of it or anything. Uh, But basically it's like... Uh, a bunch of young people who have trials and tribulations and sleep together and they uh, have blogs that they write that are, in, you know, titillating in some way um, and she contrasts this with uh, um, is Michael Joyce, Michael Joyce's Afternoon Hmm. I actually um, went to go try to play afternoon.
1: Uh, after reading this, to to talk about it, and the it is actually still up online, but for whatever reason, my browser would not allow me to like begin actually playing it. So, if someone has an archive of that or knows how we can play it, please let us know. I, I'm very interested in this. Uh, in what she says about
0: it, right? Um. So yeah. Uh, and she contrasts uh, Joyce's afternoon. Uh, with um. The spot, this kind of like soft core uh, blog archive, uh, because it is sort of more emotionally sophisticated. Essentially, what afternoon is, um, it's uh, a kind, it's a guy uh, narrating his afternoon, and. What you discover as you're sort of navigating through this uh, piece of interactive fiction, right? He he says something, and you sort of click a link or whatever, and it takes you to a different part. Like it leads off to another thought. Um, one of the things that becomes clear as you as you play through this um, is he is ignoring things, right? Like you can you can follow certain thoughts, but you can't follow others, and it becomes uh, clear that it's because the speaker is is. Uh, um avoiding focusing on a, a particular traumatic event um which is possibly the death of his daughter um and so uh she says that this is one way that a uh, multi-form narrative could be uh more sophisticated than something like all of these weird sexy blog posts right it becomes this method of modeling uh, a kind of certain psychological state um that is itself kind of weird and multi-form and jumbled and in some extent nonlinear.
1: But then she like begins to, to put weight on all of this, mm-hmm. like, because she ends up critiquing afternoon, right? Yes, and the critique is that it's like postmodern nonsense,
0: right? Right. <laughs> right. the The confusion is an end in itself, as the postmodernists would have you have you believe, or something like that. To a post, oh. this is the quotation:
1: To a postmodern artist, confusion is not a bug but a feature. <laughs> and so i mean there's this weird implicit thing well it's explicit in that she is flagging it uh as like not being appropriate or useful or something like that but it's uh, there's no direct reason why this is bad right? right like she never is making a statement about why this is not preferred or whatever um but she begins leveraging these this language of encyclopedic writing Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to show up in, in some later chapters, but she leverages like encyclopedic writing that allows you this kind of free form exploration like like afternoon mm-hmm. uh, versus encyclopedic uh, writing that is guiding you through it in such a way as to be meaningful or useful or something like that. And like James Joyce gets gets to be that. Um, and so does the Talmud. <laughs> It also gets to be that because of, like, the writing and then, you know, generations and generations of rabbis doing commentary and things like that.
0: Right. Um, So, yeah, I think I think that is an interesting turn for this to take, because in some ways, uh, the the uh, the real space that opens up. Yeah, the the term she uses is encyclopedic, but like the, the Deridian term, of course, here would be the archive. Mm -hmm. which is the Talmud is a great example of this, right? Is um, sort of the central text and then layers and layers upon layers of commentary. Um, And then suddenly it comes to you and you kind of have to navigate through it. Uh, But it's always like she, she always angles for a kind of, um, I mean, a utopian way of looking at that, right there. They, the archive itself never has any ash in it for her. It seems like, which is, you know, deeply ironic considering you tried to play Joyce's afternoon and it's not working. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I get
1: what Michael means by that is like, uh, that Derrida has this book called archive fever. That's about reading the notion of an archive, like what an archive is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it does that by looking at uh, Freud and looking at Freud's writing pad, like how it worked, Mm -hmm. and then looking at Freud's house and then an art exhibition about Freud's house. Um, and so it's about, and, and what Derrida is getting at in that, it's a very short book, and I encourage, like, if you think concepts of the archive are interesting, I encourage you to read it. Like, it's a genuinely kind of gripping read, despite being kind of difficult to work through. Um, but what, he, what Derrida is always getting at, whenever he's talking about the archive or uh, hist- history in general, is that, like Michael said, there, there are these cinders, this, there's this ash Um, of previous experience or things that aren't spoken or things that aren't there or absences that are, uh, that are present in their absence. And this is where like a good Duridian reading of afternoon might be useful, right? Like he's talking around a thing and you get all of this information, but the information is only useful in that it demonstrates a gap. Right, Mm -hmm. and then like the revelation is that there was a gap there the whole time. So like I think I think Derrida might be a little bit helpful for talking about uh, afternoon, but in any case, like that's what Derrida was leveraging, right? Was this idea of the encyclopedic world that. Even when it thought that it could cover everything or speak to everything, it was always woefully incomplete, right? It it could never get there. It was, in fact, what it could not talk about. And, you know, Derrida is uh, heavily, heavily influenced by the Holocaust Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and, and the various, like, massive... I mean, just just the horrors of modernity, period, I mm-hmm. guess, uh, especially in regards to human life. And so he he's trying to figure out, like, how do awful things occur, both individually and socially and structurally, and how does life continue going on? And it's through this weird process of uh, keeping everything and then excluding things from that keeping.
0: Right. And so, I mean, that's... A way in which theory would be, I think, very illuminating, um, but it just doesn't show up here. So, like, just this book is like probably the longest book we've read, and we're maybe like a third through it. <laughs> we've been talking <laughs> for a while. That's true. Um, uh, but so I'm not like trying to push us too far. But I'm saying this also uh, points to uh, something that's going to happen in chapter three. Uh, which is probably like the 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 chapter that most get well not it's not probably it is right this is the chapter that most most gets excerpted um, and sort of read yeah. as a standalone. Um, so the previous two chapters have been all about uh, kind of the the th- like movies and books and so on and so forth um, things that are not quite games not quite digital narratives but are sort of like pushing toward it. Um, and one of the th- she, things she gets to in chapter three, which is called From Additive to Expressive Form, and this, uh, of course, um, is very much a, a McLuhan esque idea as well uh, that uh, media are always, new media are always sort of understood in terms of older media. Um, so for instance, uh, film. When it when it shows up, uh, is called photoplay because it is understood as a, a mixture of photography and theater. Right? It is a, like essentially filmed theater, um, and they call it photoplay. And that is what she calls additive form. So when uh, we're talking about uh, oh my god, what's a what's a good example of of an additive thing that would be more more contemporary? um the citizen cane of video games right mm-hmm. <laughs> uh like that's saying or even like the shakespeare of video games um that's uh that's a movement of additive form that's saying like here is this previous media media form and i am going to use it to understand what is happening in this new media form um and what murray thinks we need to do is uh take advantage of the things that computers offer that are unique to uh those like unique to them being computers which one of them is for instance that encyclopedic nature that you talk about she actually has four things um computers are procedural which means that uh they have a rule set that uh sort of gets dynamically invoked uh in response to user input, right? A computer does certain things in response to you doing certain things, or parts of a program do certain things in response to other parts of other programs or the same program doing certain things. It's not a a sort of linear set-in-stone thing. It is reactive, um, or it is procedural um, in in sort of the the normal nomenclature. And this ties in with it being participatory, which is to say uh, there is outside of the computer someone uh, who is being asked to push a button, move something forward, uh, and then so kind of setting the procedural dominoes falling? Um, and these come together to make uh, what does she call it? There's kind of an umbrella term um, for this procedural pres- plus precip- participatory yeah. procedural. Pres- please cut this. Um, <laughs> procedural and participatory uh, make uh, like they come together to make, what is it, agential or agency or something? Uh, yeah, eventually that pays off in agency. Right, right. I so can't those, remember if it's here or not. Right, so eventually, like just laying this out in front of us, those things come together to uh, create the, the issue of agency or sort of the concept of agency as it applies to these narratives. Um, and then the following two are spatial and encyclopedic. And we already talked about encyclopedic, which is essentially like uh, there is a whole lot of content. Right, like computers can hold content uh, in, in much, much more content than a book can, than a film can. Like there is a lot of stuff uh, in, in a computer. Um, and then it is spatial. And this is interesting uh, because this ties in with uh, kind of hypertext and really the Internet is one of her, her big uh, touch points here. It is spatial. You might not think of the Internet as spatial, but it is for Murray uh, because you are really like you are navigating Uh, through even though it's just like this flat screen there are things embedded within things there are icons that you click on that open up over other things on top of other things Um, there's a a depth right it's it's illusory right but it's kind of a um, a a way like the the structures of space uh, organize the encyclopedic contents of the computer uh, yeah,
1: and I would encourage people. This is a so when I've taught this chapter, have you ever taught this chapter before?
0: I have not.
1: Okay, so I've I've taught this two times uh, several years ago now, but but just the you know in order to get students talking about these properties because I do think that they are very helpful agree with them or not, they are very helpful for, like, orienting you to how you think about comp, you know, video games and computational objects, period. Like, mm-hmm. you have to make some decisions about whether you are on board with these claims or not. So it's a great kind of instructional tool. Um, but spatial is always a sticking point, or the two times I taught it, it was a sticking point both times. Students just do not buy it, or my students did not buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they're they kind of on board with everything else, but spatial wasn't for them. And I mean, there's an interesting argument because, you know, what she writes here is very similar to like some some Lev Manovich style uh, you know software studies arguments. Mm-hmm. But then you have Alexander Galloway in the interface effect reading the screen of World of Warcraft and kind of making the exact opposite argument. So this is if if uh, if people who are listening like hear this and are like, well, I don't know about it being spatial. There's a
0: lively and interesting debate around that. <laughs> um that's worth going and checking out yeah so um yeah that's like i think this you you said you excerpted this and i think this is the chapter that gets most excerpted because it is the one where she uh really just lays out like hey guess what here are here are the things digital media can do right she kind of like this is probably the closest uh any of the chapters get to kind of being a a theory um, of digital media, rather than mm-hmm. sort of a, an extended rumination on or reflection on. Um, and so, uh, right, her, her, basically her overall point here is, like, here are the four properties of, of digital media. Um, they are procedural, they are participatory, and this orbits the topic of agency, more on which later. And then they are also spatial and encyclopedic, which uh, come together to orbit the topic of immersiveness. Immersion? Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's a harder one to, to noun. But um, <laughs> anyway, so agency and immersion then are kind of the, the two broader categories that come together. And moving from additive form to expressive form is going to mean, for Murray, uh, creating artworks, uh, digital artworks, that rather than trying to be a combination of... Um, a television and uh, a book or something uh, are going to just like sort of be expressions of the the these capabilities of immersion of agency of space of the encyclopedic content. Right? They are uh, the the properties themselves will be the focus of the medium rather than trying to recapture. Or uh, translate the uh, standards and conventions of an earlier medium.
1: And and I also want to just, because
0: it's going to pay off later,
1: there's some like uh, yet another dig at a particular vein of postmodernism or something, like a specter of postmodernism. This is a quotation. She says, uh, encyclopedic writing encourages long-windedness and formlessness in storytellers. And it leaves readers slash interactors wondering which of the several endpoints is the end and how they can Know if they've seen everything there is to see, um, and what's really interesting to me is like this is the this you know, this is the fan wiki side yeah. that you were talking about earlier, right? Like, like when a new game comes out that might have multiple endings, the the articles that you see going around or not. Did I enjoy it? Did I not enjoy it? What what's kind of a critical perspective? It's did you see the third ending of Hollow Knight? Yeah, um, it's that kind of thing. It, it's very interesting how what she sees as like encyclopedic indecisiveness has come to be the main, or I would say the dominant way of engaging with Uh, video game writing on the internet for a lot of people right and Uh,
0: also also like television writing right uh lore explainers unpacking theory, theory crafting so what's interesting is she imagines um kind of like this future of um television on the internet essentially uh this is one of her sort of like very short paragraphs where she's like in the future here's how we might watch tv um And so her sort of like projection here is like, okay, so imagine a uh, television show that she calls a web soap. um, So that like, you know, it's like a soap opera. There are multiple characters. They all have intersecting plot lines. um, But you don't care about some of them and you do care about (laughs) others. uh, Mm -hmm. And sort of... In, in kind of the um, most utopian sense of this, what would happen is you could just focus on the parts that you cared about, right? You would only have to care about the characters that you cared about. Like the other characters could be off doing their thing, but you could, instead of following their plot lines, you could instead, like, go to the, like, somehow digitally explore, like, the apartments of the characters that you care about, right? And, like, learn more about them. Um, and just sort of like keep your focus on them. And what I think is really interesting, as as you point out with like the fan wiki culture, is that this isn't what has happened. In fact, what has happened is uh, like the goalposts have just been moved so that like for complete enjoyment, you have to know about all of the endings. Yeah. Right. You have to be after after like Westworld or Game of Thrones or whatever the hell. Uh you have to like, you know, pop onto the internet and see what people are saying. Like, what did you miss this easter egg? Like, did you see is this foreshadowing? Is this a plot twist? Is this going to happen? Um that that uh, kind of um Uh, marginal space uh, instead of being uh, fleshed out into its own potential like space for extended plot lines or development or whatever um, remains kind of marginal but at the same time like has just been made more necessary (laughs) yeah like you the
1: the the move has not been that there are nine different pathways and you choose one and that makes you happy it is the move has been that with mastery of those nine pathways, you'll be able to make it between now and the next season. Right. Uh, Or between now and the next game, right? I mean, I'm thinking about like Dark Souls and Bloodborne and those Mm -hmm. From Software games where it's like, you know, Bloodborne came out several years ago now and there's still lively debates about what happened and, you know, like what the story of the game even is. Right. And the reason for that, right, is it's just like a massive debate over how you read narrative... Uh, I don't know, like vestigial limbs, right? Like, (laughs) how do you see them? Right. uh, In, in this kind of, um, broad network of stuff. So anyway, yeah. And there's a chapter later that we'll probably talk about TV again,
0: because she really cares about the future of TV. She does. Um, yeah. So after after additive to expressive, right? Then she moves into uh, a sort of related topic uh, to what we were just talking about, which is the idea of immersion, which we shall recall is the combination of encyclopedic and spatial qualities of digital media. Um, and so immersion, uh, as she as she sort of starts this chapter, uh, she begins with Don Quixote, um, Miguel de Cervantes' uh, novel, of course, like. If, if you're re- if you're listening to this you probably know about don quixote uh but um to kind of contextualize why that novel is important um is that it is possibly the first thing in in europe at least that gets made that you could call a novel or that some people would call a novel um and uh it is uh, sort of notably uh it is a book about a person who reads books um so uh, you know, Don Quixote reads a lot of uh, romances, uh, the character of Don Quixote. Uh, he reads a lot of romances, uh, which are, you know, sort of tales of knights and daring do. Um, they were very much in vogue uh, through the, the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, up through the early modern period. And. Um, and the book itself don quixote is is a comedy in so far as you know don quixote has read so many of these books that he believes he has entered the world of of romance uh and the pleasure of reading don quixote is having this man who has just like essentially lost his mind uh wander around spain and uh get into lots of trouble because he thinks he's a knight from a romance uh and no one else in the world can understand like what he's getting at or what he's trying to do um so uh you know she says this is games are an improvement of on don quixote's books because uh as she says digital media take us to a place where we can act out our fantasies um I think that's interesting, right? Like her basic argument is like, if only Don Quixote had had video games, <laughs> mm-hmm. if only yeah. he'd had EverQuest, uh, he, things would have turned out better for him. Probably. Um, I would actually flip this. and We could talk about this more. Uh, but I would flip this and I would say that actually what games do is they commodify the quixotic impulse, right? They, yeah. they like take that desire to immerse yourself and they make that the experience. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, like a hundred percent, right? Yeah. I mean,
1: a hundred years later, we get uh Mary Wollstonecraft or more than a hundred years later, we get Mary Wollstonecraft making the exact same argument, but about uh, a different kind of romance <laughs> about mm-hmm. about romantic novels, uh, mm-hmm. as in like, you know, erotic and sexual novels and how they like uh basically like... Imprint themselves into young women's minds, and they don't know the difference between fantasy and reality. And we see the same thing happen in, you know, Flaubert's Madame Bovary, right? Like, mm-hmm. like this becomes a mainline argument about the way that
0: books work, right? Um, in yeah, like, no, a like basic yeah. way. Uh, I don't remember exactly which narratologist it is who makes this argument. It might be Gerard Genette, um, which narratology we've talked about a couple times is the study of like narrative, usually in fiction. Um, and Gerard Genette is one of the preeminent narratologists uh, operating in the mid century. And. Um, He, I think it's him, uh, he says one of the key indicators uh, that uh, something is a work of fiction uh, is that there is a character in the work who cannot distinguish between fiction and reality. (laughs) (laughs) so uh that's his that's his sort of like way of explaining why uh this shows up again and again and again in the history of literature is because um one of the ways that literature marks itself as fictional is by uh sort of staging the inability to recognize its own fictionality within the text that is very good yeah um so uh yeah like this is all like to say that uh for Murray, uh, we are still kind of, at least in, you know, 1997, 98, uh, we're still kind of negotiating um, what she calls the fourth wall, which is, of course, a theatrical metaphor. That's the, uh, you know, the invisible wall that separates the audience from what's happening on stage. And uh, she has this story about when she saw a performance of Peter Pan. um And the part where Tinkerbell is dying and Peter turns to the audience and says, you know, you know, you have to like say you believe in fairies and clap to help Tinkerbell, um, you know, live. Uh, And this is a very fun participatory moment. All the children can clap except for her. It was actually deeply horrifying (laughs) um, because it broke the fourth wall and deflated the illusion. And this is like a standard part of the Peter Pan play, right? Right. No, this is is not like
1: some rogue, uh, theatrical production,
0: right? This is, this is a well-known thing that happens in the production of Peter Pan. Um, but uh so for murray right this this becomes a very like disturbing experience of like having that fourth wall broken um and she says one of the things we need to do uh in digital media is figure out where that fourth wall is right to to kind of like set off um the fictional world from our world um which i think is a very complicated i think that's a maybe right like but like it's a very complicated issue because the fourth wall itself doesn't even come to exist until like the 18th century in theater right and shakespeare's theater that's theater in the round um like you know shakespeare's companies and companies contemporary to him uh would not have expected there to be a fourth wall would have in fact like constantly have been talking back to the audience because it was expected that the audience would be like yelling at you essentially being like why are you doing that that's stupid right and so part of being a good actor in shakespeare's time was about being a good improviser and being able to shut down hecklers
1: Yeah, um, a piece that I really love is in Jacques Ranciere's thesis book, and mm-hmm. he writes about French theater in the 1700s and the 1800s, mm-hmm. and he makes the exact same point, right? That that theater becomes highly politicized in France, and the way it becomes politicized is that there are several movements of people who deeply disagree with one another, but they all are carrying this longer tradition of theater, where like someone will make a political point in the production, and then someone from the audience is expected to yell and be like no you're you're wrong about the way that art works you're you're wrong about the way that politics works and then you use that as a method of staging an argument with the audience um that what sometimes would end up very very poorly right but he's saying in that piece that like this is a key component of how
0: people are thinking the theater at that time right and so for murray um she has a much later sort of sense of like what constitutes like an art object or an aesthetic experience because um is very into uh like what are the structures that we need to implement to uh, sustain what she calls the active creation of belief um which is like you know reader response theory or the suspension of disbelief or something like what do we need like what conventions need to be in place for us to uh interact with narratives um but also at the same time feel invested in them as sort of like unreal worlds as so in the way that you normally feel invested in a film or like is i say normally like i'm making some very broad characterizations here um Mm -hmm. there's this idea that when you watch a film or when you see a play that has a very clear fourth wall um you are like looking in on a world right that exists apart from your own um that's you know what the fourth wall is all about and it's about being like the aesthetic experience is about being this detached observer who just kind of you know sees everything takes it all in and then goes on your merry way and sort of processes it and whatever um there is a sense for murray and like she's not wrong right that uh when you open up Uh, The floodgates and allow participation, um, you threaten suspension of disbelief because what is going to happen with your immersion, as we call it, um, is the actor or rather the interactor is going to expect to be able to make the thing behave in a certain way the game right we're going to expect to be able to pull off a certain behavior in the game except it turns out that's not programmed in right the the interactor has an idea about how the fictional world works that is not in fact how the fictional world works and suspension of disbelief is destroyed they Mm -hmm. can no longer be invested in it um so one of the things that she emphasizes here, right. Is that in order for immersion to work, uh, there need to be scripted roles, right? Like she talks about masks in Greek drama, um, cause ancient Greeks did not, you know, perform, uh, like without elaborate costumes. They had very large, uh, masks that they wore, uh, that, uh, showed to the audience, like, this is not like this actor is portraying this type of character, right? Um, there's a kind of artificialization uh, of of uh, the representation of personhood. That it's not aiming for something that is very similar. It is aiming for something um, that is like this. This character is a stock character, right? They they are they are the uh, they are the king. They are the chorus. They are the the um, angry father. They are serving a purpose in the narrative machine. You are not to take them as more than that. Yeah, that they're,
1: like, everyone in that theatrical universe is very, like, delimited. And ultimately, that's kind of, you know, in later chapters in this book, that's kind of, like, how she argues that you can most successfully create a truly expressive experience, right? That, um, that you can use different methods of creating more robust versions of that, but mm-hmm. still versions of that, like...
0: You know, they're never going to be saying, well,
1: gosh, I'm doing this because I'm in a video game.
0: <laughs> right. Essentially, her thought is like that the computer basically makes um, it, it, it blows the uh, possibilities for scripting roles wide open, much wider than they have ever been previously in, in, in um, you know, uh, art history. Uh, yeah. But so, well, here's a question I want to throw to you then, because I think
1: this is like the extent, the, There are a lot of examples in this chapter. I don't think that this argument is pursued much further or elaborated on much further. Is this immersion to you?
0: I don't know, because I kind of think immersion is a fake idea. <laughs> and and um, I yeah i want to make my plug really quick. I, agreed
1: i'm also very <laughs> skeptical and i think a lot of people of our uh kind of academic generation are also very skeptical of the notion of immersion because mm-hmm. partially you know our adulthood is very much in conversation with all kinds of like kind of ephemeral objects that we can interact with and not interact with kind of at whim like i don't know many people who don't Watch TV and then also, you know, multitask with a tablet or a phone or something like that. Right? Mm-hmm. Like these are these are common behaviors. Um, and also, you know, right after this book comes out, or a few years after a book this book comes out, we end up with um, uh, Katie Salen and Eric Zimmerman's game textbook, game design textbook, which is still mm-hmm. widely used. And it has a whole section that it calls the immersive fallacy, that is kind of directly in conversation with this and saying like look you need to to kind of as a designer you need to be aware of like the different uh capabilities of a game and sometimes you can get toward immersion but really that's like a false problem it seems like <laughs> academia for the most part uh skip that part of that book but right um this was this was questioned very early on by a lot of people but i think that there's there's still a lot of people that are full in on immersion
0: mm-hmm. i mean absolutely right like that's in i think sort of uh games generally like gamers and people who play games and sort of write about games in in popular outlets um like immersion is very much a, a kind of um, sticking point uh for a lot of people right like oh but my immersion uh is mm-hmm. is a sort of erotic way of being of like talking about someone who is like way hung up on something that is to you right really not important to your experience of of the text of the game or whatever um but it's like oh but i should be able to kill children in the elder scrolls because or fallout because otherwise it's not immersive Mm -hmm. (laughs) right that that kind of argument True. Um, (laughs) everyone else in the world can be killed why can't these children die uh, mm-hmm. It breaks my immersion, um, but yeah. So uh, really, what's happening there in terms of of like what Murray is talking about is the game has scripted uh, the player in a way that a certain subject subsection of the player base does not like. Right? The the game has scripted you as someone who does not, in fact, cannot kill children. Um, and the there's a there are players who are like, well. I don't agree with that. I want to be someone who kills children. So really you have to, well, it adds this additional layer of like
1: procedurality to it because then people make mods to allow you to kill children. Right. Right. Like, (laughs) so I mean, I guess maybe it's the demonstration that the platform, at least in concept, (laughs) like it does solve the problem. Right. (laughs) Uh, Because it's another
0: like layer of the participatory theater. Right. Um, So, uh, yeah, uh, and actually in her 2016 update, one of the things she talks about with Immersion um, that I think is interesting is she talks about sort of the emergence of ARGs, alternate reality Mm -hmm. games, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is a very interesting uh, thing to note because the way we think about Immersion is usually, or I guess like the way that Immersion is popularly talked about is just like, oh, I believe this world, right? At no point while playing Fallout... Um, where I'm not, I guess you know, indulging my desire to like murder children. Um, at no point do I doubt kind of like the coherence of this little fictional world that I'm looking in on and like poking at. Um, but I don't think anyone who plays an ARG is ever actually like, oh man, like definitely a an AI from space has like crash landed in an apiary or whatever the plot to iHeartBees was, right? The, uh-huh. the Halo 2 ARG. Um, the thing about ARGs that I think is really interesting is that they are not immersive. They, uh, you know, make use of the real world and, like, the space of the real world, right? They kind of, like, maybe give you that um, illusion. Not, not, they did not even give you an illusion, right? But, like, uh, there's a pleasant effect, right? They imbue the world with a kind of... Um, narrative meaningfulness that it otherwise might not have but it's not in and of itself immersive in in kind of the at least the vulgar sense yeah i mean there's a weird thing too that like a lot of the way that
1: args get solved out or like difficult parts of them get solved is that someone figures out what the umbrella corporation is that is you know, operating all these smaller LLCs that are buying up web domains. And mm-hmm. then they just figure out what the kind of network map is and they work forward from there. Um, and so like everyone recognizes the bounds of the illusion and then you play within that, that right. illusion. Um, I really love that her example or one of her examples of immersion breaking behavior in this, in this chapter is that Val Kilmer is way too sexy. Right. This is, Oh, this part is so odd. <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird. Cause she's like, I was watching, imax movie the imax movie she talks about a couple chapters before uh, mm-hmm. as kind of being non-expressive uh you know not procedural things like that it's only giving you the the feeling of exhilaration it's not you know uh providing real quote-unquote real exhilaration or uh interactivity and she says that you know val kilmer looks directly down the barrel of the camera <laughs> right into my I mean this is not a quote, but she's basically like Falcomer looked directly into my soul and it took me <laughs> out of the experience as right. much as Peter Pan did. And that is uh that that's just very funny to because like I can imagine having this conversation or maybe I'll put it this way, there are lots of people that I know who are very uh emotionally and erotically invested in fictional and non fictional characters whose right. only interaction that they have with those characters are uh those characters looking into the camera. So I'm thinking about like people in the supernatural fandom who find all of the characters of supernatural very attractive and their only access to them is when those characters look into the camera and look sexy and they have no problem with that. That is not immersion breaking right. at all. Like that
0: is fulfilling. Right. No, that's I mean it was one of those things that i i also like noted this because i thought it was strange Or i was just like is d- do you find him less sexy when he's looking at you like i i agree like val kilmer like especially like 90s val kilmer like very handsome man right like he was in his prime and like i don't think him looking into the camera would have <laughs> would have done no. anything no that does not strike me at, 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 in my heart right um <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think probably, you know, to some extent, that's probably generational, uh, in, in yeah. terms of like, you know, how comfortable we are with media and how we expect to experience like screened media, especially. Mm hmm. Um, yeah and she also talks the the other thing i just i want to throw this out here because in addition to like everything that she talks about in here she there is a discussion of uh the harrison ford film witness where he goes into witness protection program and poses an amish man and it's Mm -hmm. just the right here smack dab in the middle of this book about digital media um we get we get a discussion of harrison ford and the sex scene in witness and it is just like the most incredible thing (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, they, they also, that she finds his body too distracting.
1: Like, right. she says that Harrison Ford's body is so attractive that it literally breaks the traditional model of the film form. <laughs> like, it's beyond the pale for her.
0: Yeah, i I don't know what to make of this. Other than, like... It's, it's strange. It's it's um. very strange. But if
1: you want to read about that, I mean, it's more of a, like a lot, a lot of the examples in this, it is additive. Like, she's just trying to rehearse the argument one more time for you. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a well-written book in that way, that it really wants to make sure that you leave every chapter having a sense of what happened. But I don't know what is
0: added by the the thing. Right. Um so yes, uh, moving on from things. What's interesting about these examples too, actually, this is a good segue, is that none of these are things that have to do with agency, which are kind of, which is the the primary concern with what breaks immersion in participatory media, right? The idea that um, the player or interactor or what have you is going to want to do something that the game is not going to let them do, and then that's going to upset them. Um, so none of these things are participatory, right? There is no there is no point at which like janet murray like herself turned the camera into val kilmer's uh you know dreamy eyes like Mm -hmm. that was a thing that the film did and it broke her immersion um but the next chapter is all about agency and the ways that uh interactors may expect uh things to behave and how those things may or may not actually pan out for them um and this ties in uh see how does she put this so um this is just a quote from her when the things we do have tangible results we experience the second characteristic delight of electronic environments the sense of agency agency is the satisfying power to take meaningful action and see the results of our decisions and choices So the idea that, uh, as she puts it, the world of the digital world of the narrative, the text, what have you, is uh, dynamically altered in some way by your intervention into it.
1: I I don't know. I understand the value of the claim Mm -hmm. and of like the bright line argument. Like there are things that are agential. There are things that are not actions that are that involve agency and actions that don't. I think that reading a book is probably the same (laughs) or uh, watching a movie and choosing whether to look at my phone or look at the book I have in my lap or looking at the movie or choosing just to not pay attention when scenes between two characters are happening. That feels like it's not changing the world of the of the thing. But if the experience lives in the mind of the audience, which kind of comes up over and over here in, in the thing, right? Like narrative is transmitted and it goes into a receptor and the receptor is a person. Um, if, if the kind of critical moment there of reception revolves around like my choice to interact or not interact, it seems like that's happening a lot of times in a lot of different
0: media that it, that doesn't fall under this paradigm. Right. Um, I think, and one thing you, you sort of point out, right, is that this is a very universalized notion of, of what agency is and what it means. Um, this kind of idea of being able to enter into a world and poke at something and see a satisfactory result is, um, there's, a, there's a lot of assumptions being made at, at about the, the kind of person for whom this is what agency means, that this is like what we mean when we talk about agency. Uh, do you want to yeah. say more about that? I mean I, I just think that and I, I want to at some
1: point in the you know the next several months of us doing this podcast I think we are you know I wrote a list of things a list of books that I was interested in reading and you have also written that that list of books and one of those is CLR James's Beyond a Boundary, which is mm-hmm. just uh, like uh, anyway we'll talk about it at some point but it's about uh, the Caribbean and it's about how or it's about uh, English colonies. And mm-hmm. how agency can function within the colonial structure—that's mm-hmm. the kind of big gist of it. And uh, agency for agency for someone who's not like universalized within contemporary culture. So, say you're a person of color, or you are someone with like uh, a disability, or say that you are uh, just anyone who experiences structural oppression. Mm-hmm. It is difficult for me to imagine. Agency functioning this way for them in the same way that it does for me—a white dude whose agency in the real world and agency in a video game are kind of the same—in the sense of um, I can do a lot of things. Like there are very few boundaries on what is acceptable
0: behavior for me. Right. Um, so yeah, just to kind of foreground that—that—that uh, that, that idea of agency is running through here, through this entire chapter, through this book, um, and. I don't know. It's just worth keeping in mind, especially when we think about uh the uh I don't know. Um I yeah, I mean I
1: I think you're right to like have the kind of big question mark block you yeah. here, right? Because it's like meaningful action. Mm-hmm. It the the framework through which you approach the very notion of meaningful action is loaded with thousands of qualifiers, right? And there's
0: no ability to address that within this chapter yeah and what i think is really interesting is that so you know just within a few pages like this chapter goes into some weird places with what we are thinking of as meaningful action uh, because she talks about mist this is kind of the chat she talks about mist a couple times before this mist the uh game not mist the uh you know environmental phenomenon Mm -hmm. um and uh she talks about uh you know there are uh, there are are a couple ways that mist can end there is like a good ending right where you um find out that the brothers are lying to you and you uh outsmart them um and then there's the ending where you listen to one of the brothers uh and they trap you in the magic book at the very end and she ends up saying like the bad ending to mist is much more interesting than the good ending to mist yeah Which I think Uh, I I possibly, I think I agree with her, right? But it's like, so what does that mean for meaningful action, right? Is meaning, like, I I do everything in this world that I, like, there's all these, this world, this digital world exists, uh, and it's telling me this story, and there are all these things that I can do, and uh, if I do them right, then I get the reward of, like, freeing, uh, oh, God, what's their father's name? Uh, Atrus. Atrus, yes. So I get, the, I get the sort of reward of freeing Atris, and uh, hooray, right? Everything's great. Um, like, that is my reward for, like, having exercised my agency appropriately. Except then she also says, like, well, it's actually much more interesting if you play the game wrong. <laughs> yeah, and one could imagine that, uh, pr-
1: you know, there are people in the world who might not find the idea of being permanently enslaved at the end of the game to be the most interesting, right? Like, like in a very real way, it's like, I don't, and, and also, like, I don't even know if I agree in, in the macro, if we bracket all of, like, the very specific weird issues I have with this, I think it is much more interesting that uh, you free Atris and then, I'm sorry, spoilers for the ending of Myst. You, you've had a very oh, long time to play yeah. this game. Um, but uh, Atris comes out and literally obliterates his son's ability to leave those books. Like, he traps his sons in hell and has <laughs> no guilt about it over the next, like, three games. Um, So, like, I think that's even more interesting. Like, maybe... And and that, uh, you know, has something to do with how she is figuring a universalizable subject who has, like, thrills and chills, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she... I don't know. I don't know who the subject position is here that is universalizable, period. I mean, this is going to... Maybe I'll just say this here rather than later, but later she says that... She makes it very explicit that, like, the feelies, which show up in Brave New World, and she talks about a little bit in the first chapter, Mm -hmm. that feelies, which is, like, where you sit in a movie theater and you hold onto two metal rods, and you, like, watch someone kissing on screen, and you get this, like... Beautiful feeling throughout your entire body. That like it's totally rad to kiss. It's awesome. It's totally hecking cool. And the protagonist of that of of uh, Brave New World is like disgusted with it. He hates the very idea with it. He like goes home and reads a book like right. a proper educated person would do. Right. 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 Right.
0: Um, and she says goes like, home well, to be- read a, goes home to read Othello. Goes home to read Shakespeare. <laughs> this is Go, important. Well, <laughs> goes home to read Othello too. Yes, right. Like because the film that they are watching shows an interracial relationship right like oh Oh, man that's right and it's like i think it's it is i don't remember if it's implied or outright said that like the the things you see in the feelies in in huxley's book brave new world like they are they are pornographic in our sense right they are sexually explicit so he watches this feels it is disgusted has to go read othello
1: yeah, um, okay, but so, uh, but yeah, so she says, like, later on in the book, in, a little, in, in the first chapter, too, kind of very briefly, she says, like, that's the worst version of media, It's just getting mm-hmm. sensation, that's how she leverages these IMAX examples as just pure feeling, as not being significant, but in fact, like, that's what people enjoy, like the the large the largest number of people liked the three act structure. They like the familiarity of the framework. They like stock characters, whatever. And we can like I I have just as many like problems with that as anyone else does. But if there's a universalizable subject here, if she's talking about normative human action with all of the problems that is entailed with saying that there is a universalizable or normative subject. If she's saying that, then that subject doesn't enjoy any of the things that she is saying are valuable, right? And that seems to be a big break to me between the kind of ethics of the book and then the product of the book. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to do with it.
0: So yeah, I mean that's. Uh, I mean this is this is chapter five. It's an odd. This is an odd discussion discussion to be having about a chapter that's about agency, but also it's not that odd because really. Uh, and I, you noted this in your notes, right? Is that you and I have a we, we side eye the notion of agency, um, at least sort of unqualified, and especially with regard to uh, like games, right? We've already talked about the fact that uh, like we we are both creators and makers to some extent, and uh, you know I think most of my uh, my interactive fiction is about. Um, and, and, and it helps, right So this is the other reason why I like I kind of agree with her. I like the idea of being stuck in the book at the end of mist right. I write horror stories. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and so a lot of my stories are about uh, they're interactive, right but they're interactive in ways that are sort of structured to like push you into dead ends yeah um, because that's what's scary, right is not knowing uh how much agency you have and then you know abruptly encountering that limit um in the form of a you know spooky monster or whatever
1: and i wonder too if that maybe 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 what accounts for the difference here is that she's not interested in horror stories right she's interested in the the utopian possibility of the medium Mm -hmm. which is to like get you out of that right right um, you know, if, if there are two poles, maybe to utopianism, it's maybe not even utopia and dystopia. It's utopia and absolute abject horror. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think that you tend toward the other side. But yeah, maybe that's the the reason for her that agency is so liberatory is that it is it, in its best regards uh, utopian and mm-hmm. freeing from whatever. I just don't think that that freedom is unqualified ever.
0: And that freedom right. is always unqualified for her right um so just to sort of close out this chapter and move into the next one which is called Ch- transformation i want to read this other quote um so actually i want to note one other thing this is the chapter where she talks about tetris we will not have to talk about this a lot because i imagine we will talk about it at some other point um but this is the thing that uh, the ludologists quote unquote really really um caricature her over um is this bit late in this chapter uh where she says uh that um games are symbolic drama which is to say uh they are even if a game does not on the face of it have a narrative um it is uh they are they they have us interact with them in such a way that we necessarily kind of narrativize them Right, the, when we talk about playing a game, even if it doesn't have a story, um, we talk about like we, when we talk about it, we tell a story about what it is like to play that game. So Tetris, which does not have a story, um, for her becomes this symbolic drama where it is representative of like sort of like the harried life of, of the um, early 90s American, person i guess right Mm -hmm. like uh constantly having to renegotiate uh various bits and pieces of things like trying to find time to fit things into your schedule um it becomes a way of kind of transposing all of that anxiety that you experience in your day-to-day life on um just putting together all of these blocks and getting them to disappear um that is that is the story of tetris uh and the ludologists are like how absurd is this uh which you you may or may not agree. I don't know, but like that's, I just want to say it, we have to say it because it's the thing. The Tetris thing is the thing. Uh, and then she moves into saying,, um, so what is going to be effective in in cyber drama or what have you, um, is having an author or a figure, an author figure, um, who uh, can, uh, basically accurately, understand what the interactor is going to want in terms of their ability to act right in terms of their agency what is it that my player is going to need um and then put together the structures necessary to uh sort of you know give that experience to the player um that's actually maybe sounds a little lopsided it would more be i would say it's more like uh uh the the ideal author here is someone who knows how to script an experience that never uh, gives you reason to look off the path. Essentially, right? Like you you it is so well designed that you never stop and think like, well, why can't I kill these children? <laughs> um, that's just never a question that occurs to you. Um, and so she says, perhaps the next Shakespeare of this world will be a great live action role playing GM who is also an expert computer scientist great (laughs) Uh,
1: like i mean maybe yeah um so yeah yeah i don't i mean that's the thing right is like it's interesting to read this and think about it in the age of like friends at the table Mm -hmm. right or like the the renaissance of live action role-playing uh, or not? It's not live action role playing. I guess uh, actual play is the appropriate term. Actual right. play podcasts or video or streaming or anything like that, where the the valorized kind of narrator, narration, author, device, right, or mm-hmm. person, it didn't transform with computation. Like, yeah. like this didn't. It, basically, what Matthew Mercer does is a, uh, an experienced and certainly, like, an evolved form of DMing from 1970, right? Like, we, mm-hmm. we've learned some lessons, but it seems to have passed through the computational era and landed out the other side kind of unscathed in the sense of, like, how it works. Right. Which is interesting. Um, the things that she thought would be transformed kind of weren't, as far as I'm aware.
0: Right, uh... That's So this is another thing um, that is interesting to me about this book, uh, and I think really this will take us into the next chapter about transformation, uh, because mm-hmm. we're talking—so one of the things she says that is uh, fascinating or potentially fascinating or useful or pleasurable about these digital stories is— um, is not just transformation in the sense of like, oh, I do something in this game world and uh, something changes in response, Um, but like, I am inhabiting a different role, right? I can change, like I can change my own form, my own point of view uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, And really that's one of the things she's doing in this book is constantly kind of changing her point of view because Ah, uh, when you get right down to it, she is talking about so many things. Like she is talking about games. She is talking about television. She is talking about film. She is talking about books. Uh, and a lot of the, th- a lot of the ideas that she floats about the sort of changes she expects, um, you know, as you say, like the 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 kind of like authorship sort of, um, uh, the the idea of authorship itself does not really change, uh, but like she is kind of correct in a lot of ways about like the ways that TV shows get marketed or like the ways that we interact with TV shows. Um, And I think that's really odd and interesting. And it also sort of points to the fact that the, the media object at the center of this book never really coheres. Yeah. Right. Like it is, it is about narrative rather than the media object.
1: Yes. And which is weird because sometimes we are talking, sometimes the book is talking about the way that the medium necessarily transforms the content that emerges from it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is completely agnostic of that and there's no attempt to resolve those things so much that there are like quotations toward the end of this book that i've like specifically pulled out that I'll, i'll read when we get there but that are incredibly frustrating to me yeah because because there's no decision point one way or the other about is this a book that is about the medium of uh the computational object which you know is it, I, I think that's. We're safe enough to say that there's some sort of medium there. Yeah. Or is it about the way that narrative functions, which right. is like this kind of epiphenomena of the way that medium,
0: a medium works? So right. I don't know. Yeah, I agree 100%. Right. And so, like, you know, just for instance, a, a great deal of this particular chapter is her talking about the Bronte siblings, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting. It's that's a really interesting. Like, the Bronte siblings, if you have not really read about their lives, um, are like the. Um, the, the two uh, famous ones are uh, Charlotte and Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're Victorian novelists. Uh, they, uh, Charlotte writes um, Jane Eyre, and uh, Emily writes uh, Wuthering Heights. Mm-hmm. And then um, they have the third sister also wrote a novel yeah. that was just not well loved called right, was, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Right. No. And then there's the the uh, third Bronte sister whose name I actually always forget because I'm not a Victorianist. It's um, uh, Anne. Anne. Yes, Anne. Um, and then they have a brother, Bramwell. Um, Bramwell. <laughs> right. Who was a who was an extreme alcoholic Yeah. and drank <laughs> away their entire family fortune. <laughs> it's oh, a real boy. bummer. Yep. So. Uh, all that aside, when these people were kids, <laughs> they had a, a very highly developed, um, sort of, a ima- like, shared imaginary world, um, that they all, they, like, basically wrote this, uh, almost, like, Tolkien-esque, like, fictional history of this country, and, uh, they had sort of, like, their favorite characters that they would focus on, um, and they all collaborated. All of all of the kids collaborated uh, in sort of building this imaginary world. And um, one of the things that uh, Murray ends up saying, right, is that this is essentially like wish-fulfillment fantasies, which, yeah, sure, right? The Bronte Juvenalia is probably wish-fulfillment fantasies. They're all these, like, you know, whiz-cracking adventure stories about um, beautiful people who have, like, conflicts but always come out on top and that sort of thing. Um, but... Uh, She also points to how uh, Charlotte, for instance, um, and I think, I believe Charlotte is the one that she singles out uh, Uh, for whatever reason. um, I, I, think you could probably say the same for Emily uh but she points out Charlotte as the one who kind of like matures maybe because Charlotte is the one who first grows disenchanted with this whole exercise um and just sort of stops participating right she turns to like writing her own fiction um and it stops being wish fulfillment uh because it gains sort of the hallmarks of mature fiction where uh the characters don't just kind of like no one's People aren't Mary Sue's, right? In in the uh, the the, of, the, linguo, the lingo of the uh, lingo, the lingo of modern fan fiction, um, mm-hmm. they aren't characters who are just totally perfect and just breeze through life. They are characters who make hard choices, who sometimes like you know lose, who experience like something like psychological um, verisimilitude. So uh, there's a, a progressive arc for art here that she is charting, but I think it's also worth highlighting, right? That, um, she is saying that the progression of an art form broadly construed is analogous to the, uh, progression of a child's imagination that yeah. you start out as a kid and you just have all of, and I'm not going to get too Freudian here, right? <laughs> um, but she's <laughs> in some ways she's, she's like, just, she's, she doesn't say it really, but she's just asking me to bring it in. Um, You started as a child, and you just have all of these fantasies about uh, these sort of romantic fantasies about you being the center of the universe and everyone catering to your whim, and then eventually you learn, oh, that's not how the world works. Um, and you kind of have to uh, straighten up and fly right. Um, and she says that basically, like, the the uh, journey of an artistic medium is the same. We start out with a lot of juvenile wish fulfillment fantasies, uh, and then we move into more sophisticated narratives um, that are uh, more complicated in, in the ways that uh, they address, like, our desires and our anxieties and things like that. Yeah, and she specifically is calling
1: to, like, Winnicott and uh, Piaget. Mm -hmm. And those are both people who are, uh, well, at least Winnicott. I don't know about uh, Piaget, but they are, uh, Winnicott's contemporary with Freud and kind Mm -hmm. of doing oppositional work, but then in the kind of the end of the day gets folded into the psychoanalytic paradigm in several ways. And Piaget, of course, is as well. So, yeah, I don't think it's... It's very odd to me how often psychoanalysis is coming up in these, in these things, and that, that's both your proclivities, but also, like, they're in the text. Like, right. basic assumptions about—the basic assumptions that psychoanalysis as a method makes about the human are built into game studies in a weird way.
0: Right. I mean, not to get too far in the weeds, but I think some of this, like, comes from, uh, like, Freud uh, in the Fort Daw game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah 100%. Which we can definitely cut this out but just for context for everyone listening if you if it isn't cut um freud has this moment where he's like trying to understand like how do how do people humans like psychologically develop and he notices um that his grandson um gets really upset whenever his mom is gone right surprised like children don't like it when their moms leave um but uh sort of To fill time, basically, to kind of distract himself, uh, Freud's grandson invents this game um, where he has, like, a little hoop on a string. uh, And he, like, he has it, um, and he, like, throws it away so he can't see it or that it's, like, distant from him, and then he pulls it closer. And as he's doing this, when he, uh, you know, um, throws it, he says, Fort, like, it's gone. Um, and then he pulls it close to him until he can see it. And then he says, "da," like it's there. Like, so they're gone. They're gone. Mm -hmm. Um, and Freud, uh, you know, genius that he is says like, Oh, this is really about his mother. Um, (laughs) Because, like, <laughs> you know, how Freud understands this is, like, oh, the child feels anxiety because the mother is gone, and so he kind of, like, deals with this harsh world where his mother cannot always be there by creating this kind of fantasy space um, where he is in control of the object when it is there, when it is not, so on and so forth, right? Yeah. Um, and in some ways, this also kind of limbs the way that... Uh, um murray broadly talks about agency right the, the the idea of the interactor as one who thinks they're in control but the second they realize they're not in control that's when their immersion breaks the second they realize they can't kill the kill the children in fallout that's when the immersion breaks and that's when the fort daw game all goes all, that's when it just falls apart Right. Because the thing that they are doing to manage their anxiety, which is saying like, oh, I am this. I know the rules here. I know how this works. No longer. No longer holds. Yeah. So, yeah, that's transformation, apparently. <laughs> yep. I, I, this really
1: feels like a, just to, to cap it off. Uh, it feels like a chapter that was just about trying to talk about the Brontes yes no really like it's fun it's fun to talk i like them that's fun i i agree
0: (laughs) um yeah and so the the chapter after this uh then sort of moves from um transformation whatever that might be to the idea of the cyber bard and the multi-form plot uh and this is cyber bard yes cyber bard cyber Uh, bard what you should do in post is go through and like digitize like that every time we say it. Um, I'm not do it. <laughs> so uh, this is when she gets into like actual actual narratology. Um, which I already talked about. And she's talking about specifically E.M. Forster, who's a uh, sort of late Victorian, early Edwardian no- novelist um, who wrote uh, like Passage to India's, maybe his most famous book. Um, but he also wrote this little sort of like how to, not really how to book, but a nonfiction book called um, Aspects of the Novel, um, where he basically talks about like, here's how stories get put together and novels are written. Um, and uh one of the things he does here is uh, he makes a distinction between uh, sort of plot and story that becomes very foundational for narratology. And I can never remember which one he calls which, um, but it's something like, uh, the story is uh, the king died, and then the queen died. Right? Like, two things that happen in sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, And then plot is the king died, and then the queen died of grief. So... Uh, story, like this, the way this gets reproduced in narratology is, um, they're, they're, depending on which narratologist you're using, they'll make this distinction differently. Um, but uh, maybe the most common one is like uh, um, subject and discourse. So, like, subject is the story as, like, a discrete series of events, right, of events. These are the things that happen in the story. Um, And then discourse is the way that those things are narrated, the way that the story gets told, that adds texture to it, that um, sort of gestures at psychological reasoning, at causality, and things like that. Uh, So one of the things she sort of starts with like she starts with this and then she moves back way way back to uh the homeric bards uh who have this story that they're telling which is uh you know the odyssey or uh the iliad um and she points to a lot of research that was being done by classicists at this time uh that suggests that uh the the story that we call the Odyssey and the story that we call the Iliad were not just like stable narratives with sort of consistent causality and psychological motivations. And even like, you know, the the things that happened in them did not always happen in the same order. Rather, these stories were um, modular. And the particular bard who had memorized various bits and pieces of them would string them together in a unique order every time they recited the poem. And so the story, like, as a a kind of, like, the idea of the Odyssey, or the Odyssey as a sequence of events, stays the same, but the discourse changes significantly uh, based on how uh, the particular bard is telling the story at a point in time. Yeah, which is why, like, uh, so, for
1: example, right, the Odyssey... you know begins with leaving uh uh what uh, what do you call it the city troy leaving troy after troy falls and then it ends with uh getting back to uh his his home but then you have all these like events of uh island travel in between right you know sylla and Mm -hmm. charybdis and then uh uh, the Lotus Eaters and the Cyclops and all these different things. And you those are modular, right? Short mm-hmm. of like Circe and being stuck on the island for 10 years or whatever. Everything else is transposable in time.
0: Right, and so this is how this might um, be useful for games or for what she is here calling the multi-form plot. Uh, that is to say, because no two recitations of the Odyssey were probably exactly alike, um, we can use this way of thinking about stories as a um, sort of grounding for what we think of about narrative in in games or multi-form plots or whatever, where. Uh, I don't know, if you or I play Skyrim, we are in broad strokes going to experience the same main plot. But the side quests that we do, uh, the trolls that we fight, the various, like, stupid things that happen um, where we, like, glitch out and fall through a mountain or whatever, like, that will all be unique to our particular playthroughs or even, like, within multiple playthroughs by one person. Um, All of those things will be different, but the broad arc of, like, the story of Skyrim is going to be the same. What's a cyber barge, Michael? Right. I don't know. I
1: Um, don't know either. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i, I right. get i get the, like how the storytelling happens
0: i don't right. know what a cyberbard is right so she says um basically the cyberbard is going to be the person who um does not give the interactor uh so much freedom in the plot that the plot itself seems to become meaningless right um either because like basically anything could happen and we spin off into groundhog day nihilism or because like the Interactor loses all sort of interest in interacting and pushing the story forward So instead the, the cyber bard is going to be the person who uh, on the other side of the Interactor is the one who is kind of canny enough to either uh, Assemble and reassemble all of these narrative bits in interesting ways to keep the, the Interactor going forward or they're going to be the one who like programs uh, The system that makes that happen Right. They're going to be the one who kind of like um, operationalizes uh, the bard's ability to tell the Odyssey and at the same time um, respond to the audience as like their interest grows or as it it wanes or what have you. And like, you know, someone in the audience shouts out, like, you know, do do the Lotus Eaters next. And the bard, you know, moves on to the Lotus Eaters or what have you Mm -hmm. as. Best as I can tell you, that's what a cyber bard is. It's kind of this weird, imaginary, uh, like very singularized author figure. Um, Or I shouldn't say singularized, well, it works, but like individualized, which is also interesting because, like, that's not how, that's not even how TV is made, right? Let alone how games are made. These things are made by teams of writers and teams of people.
1: Um, yeah, but we love the fantasy of the showrunner and the auteur and, you know, the right. Steven Spielberg. Um, I mean, it's interesting to me, too, that in video games in particular, a lot of these things like she imagines this as being wholly internally driven in the sense of like, <laughs> you know, we if we abstract it, you know, there's, the, there's Todd Howard. And Todd Howard, uh, you know, uh, at, at Bethesda, he's creating this beautiful world of Skyrim for me, and then he's my cyber bard, right, for, for right. lack of a better figure to, to talk about, or a different figure. I like Todd Howard just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there's him, but I also think that, like, there are all these weird externalities that could function in the same way. So, like, achievements function the same way, right? Achievements right. are a cyber bard, especially in like more open, roguelike type games, right? Um, in the sense of like, that's what drives you forward to experiment and try new passages and to see what happened, right? Or the scene or the screen at the end of a given chapter of The Walking Dead that tells you the percentage of people that did one thing versus the other thing, like, those seem to be highly directive, they open up new pathways, they tell you where you could have gone or what you might have done and encourage you to replay again um Mm -hmm. and it's wholly structural like i don't that doesn't fit into her paradigm at all but that seems to be really operational to me
0: right no and that's sort of that that is that is one thing that's about her, her talking about the cyberbard is that for her, the cyberbard is kind of this this person who is hiding behind the stage, who's like noticing everything you're doing and um, like changing the world to fit whatever story you seem to be on the verge of. Right? It's like the the, the cyberbard for her is a a game game master, right, in a tabletop role playing game who you don't know is there. <laughs> essentially like, yeah. and I'm not saying like, this is like sort of the end all be all for this form, but I think in the way that she's kind of like theorizing it, that's kind of how she seems to be imagining it. It's um, kind of
1: like the director in the left for dead games.
0: Yes. The, yeah, that's a great example. Actually. I was trying to remember, um, which game had had that that kind of like AI? So if you're not familiar with this in the Left 4 Dead games, um, there is a an AI uh, entity program, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, just ca- an algorithm, basically. Yeah, an algorithm uh, called the Director that uh, keeps track of certain variables as your team is playing through this kind of like zombie shooter game, um, and will uh, vary certain. Aspects of the game accordingly, sending more types of one enemy because you seem to have uh, like you you have an easier time with a different kind of enemy, or you found a way to cheese it. Right? It will the game will take steps to uh, ensure that you're seeing less of that type of enemy, or what have you. Um, And one of the reasons that uh, she thinks that the idea of a cyber bard as like an individualized person is important, and I think this needs to be. mentioned right is that she looks at uh procedurally generated uh narratives in this chapter mm-hmm. and they're all really really bad <laughs> they're, yeah. they're they're just aren't good proc gen narratives um and if you like have ever read a procedurally generated novel of which there are many of them now um you know how weird and incoherent and bizarre they are uh they're you know, interesting as objects, but maybe not interesting as narratives in, in the popular sense. Um, and so she, she basically says, you know, a, a person is always going to have to be here, uh, kind of guiding, uh, the program or like making sure the program is producing things that people like rather than things that the program thinks are, ex- are acceptable.
1: Yeah. And, and it requires, I mean, for her, right. It requires the feedback loop, right? of of interaction whereas like now what's what's kind of interesting right is i think that we've moved away from the food feedback loop in favor of game design and i think you know skyrim is as good an example of this as anything else where it's a big platter of potential experiences and your interaction is choosing which of those you want as opposed Mm -hmm. to getting into a loop of of doing things and then being responded to um Right. You know, it's not like I want this, I, you know, I want this, um, uh, dinner option. I want the steak and then so I get the potatoes and then so I get the asparagus, right? It's Mm -hmm. I want steak and I want chicken and I want, uh, I don't know, the vegetarian option that's definitely a hummus sandwich.
0: Right. Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, right. So, um, yeah, that's that's a good point, right? Is that uh, the open world game? The idea of the open world game uh, really changed, I think, uh, the way we experience narrative in games. That uh, she she didn't really anticipate, because I mean, like, why would she have anticipated Grand Theft Auto Three? Yeah. Um, but uh, really, like, that's a thing. That's a direction that games have taken. Um, that in some way not necessarily like sidesteps the issue of the cyber bard but it requires less of the cyber bard as being this sort of active constantly responsive presence yeah um so but uh the other thing that she talks about here is that stories in order to be satisfying have to have a quote uh moral physics uh, mm-hmm. that attach action to consequence um so in some ways this touches on this issue of agency that we've already talked about uh where for like the stories to really matter Uh, to the to the interactor Um, there has to be a sense of like okay I did this and then this happened in the world of the game as a response um, or because of what I did and it makes sense to me it feels justifiable or justified Um, and that's why she says that we need to have the author there so we can have that conscious selection uh, I'm quoting now conscious selection juxtaposition and arrangement of elements by the author um, in order to give essentially like another human a human sense of uh, of this like moral physics um and what is interesting about this i think is that like No. (laughs) Um, or, or rather like, uh, this is a thing that games are still grappling with when, um, for instance, grand theft auto five, they resolve the issue of you being, um, this person who sometimes like helps people and then sometimes like pulls out a rocket launcher on main street and just shoots every single pedestrian you can find. Uh, they resolve that in grand theft auto five by having three different player characters who represent kind of three different modes of interacting with the world. um, and they do different types of things when you are playing as them. Uh, what I'm saying is, uh, it's also like, it's Nathan Drake in the Uncharted games, where you're just this like, ah shucks, like, you know, guy who has lots of quips and he's witty and charming and handsome, and also, man, does he love to shoot hundreds upon hundreds of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh yeah like i think there's there's something here i i don't necessarily like the phrase moral physics to me it seems more like metaphysics uh but anyway right this is this is still a thing that troubles the way that we extract narratives or experience narratives in games because you know you could say that in charted uh he's not actually shooting that many people uh like that's allegorical right like that's that's just to signify between these parts of the plot nathan drake did some sneaking and had to shoot some people
1: yeah, I I think at some point we will I don't know when this is, but uh, Miguel Sicart's The Ethics of Computer Games, Mm -hmm. um, which has a kind of a... He he kind of begins from the position of virtue ethics, which I think is a very strange place to... to, Yeah, that is To to start with thinking about ethics in a general way. Um, But he talks specifically about that kind of relationship to Grand Theft Auto, and it's in this kind of... At the very beginning of this, this episode when I was talking about the kind of first big wave of game studies that came out you know, after or whatever this is mm-hmm. um he's a part of that and I, I think we'll read that at some point it's uh, foundational enough and he's kind of continually iterated on that argument in different ways yeah but so if you're a listener and you want to kind of get way ahead of the ball that's a, a very readable and a very interesting book that i mean i don't fully agree with the whole thing but it certainly is coming at this question from a way different angle that right. is at least appreciated in its
0: method but uh yeah that's a book worth looking at right so um all right this is uh yeah this this is this is where the book i think kind of gets weird and i mean like weirder than weirder in ways that it has not been weird up to this point um one is that like structurally i'm not sure where we're going uh because we've talked about transformation and now we're talking about cyberbards and multi-form plots um and we have a lot of like she talks a lot about uh, um, you know, sort of stories that are variations on a theme, which we've we've already discussed with like the Odyssey and the Iliad. But she also touches on like Joseph Campbell here with a thousand faces, um, uh, Russian formalism, and Vladimir Prop, who uh, reads basically every single russian fairy tale that he can find and then he like systematizes them and finds like recurrent plots st- plot structures recurrent elements and he kind of like you know uses this huge body of data to uh break the idea of the russian fairy tale and its narrative into a, a kind of um database essentially from which new stories could be assembled uh and then, of course, the the necessity of a person to kind of do this assembling, at least for Murray. Uh, and then the next chapter is called Eliza's Daughters, and it is about non-player characters. Although you wouldn't really know that because she doesn't use that term. And really, what she is talking about are uh, like chatbots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she talked about Eliza earlier when she was explaining procedurality. Um, but uh, for those you know unfamiliar, um, Eliza is the if not the first, at least sort of the first notable, uh, like, chatbot program, essentially, who was, um, which, you know, she was programmed to uh, be a kind of, like, uh, coy, therapeutic, like, presence, right? She responds to uh, user input and, like, asks questions based on certain keywords and so on and so forth. If you've ever talked to a chatbot, then you know what Eliza is. Um, And then this chapter, uh eliza's daughters it just goes totally into weird places where she starts speculating about how um basically chatbots could be the future of non-player characters um and sort of like thinking about ways that chatbots can be made to be more realistic and believable and it's maybe one of the chapters that has aged sort of the least well because um we don't really talk about chatbots anymore. And on the other hand, she kind of predicts like Siri and Alexa in some ways.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's aged poorly because like, this is all basic information about the way that chatbots might work. Like if you today sat down with someone in computer science, or if you're in computer science yourself and you just like wrote down some thoughts about like how basic chatbot, functions worked and then extrapolated based on current technology, what you could do with that, then you would get to the same place. I don't know if there's a, an argument in this chapter so much as there's just like some good thinking about where that could go. Because like Eliza, right? The way that Eliza works is, is, uh, you know, you sit down and she says, how are you today? And you say, I'm too hot. And she says, tell me about hot. And you say, oh, it's <laughs> because my heating is on. It's a, she says, wow. Tell me about your heating. Yeah, and, right. Or, or she'd probably say like, tell me about my heating. And you'd be like, Eliza, I don't know if you're hot. And she'd be <laughs> like, I don't know either. Maybe my temperature is too big. You know, she would respond based on a very limited set of words on her end and then mostly just reusing the words that you used. And then right. if you just sit down and you think, well, where could that go? You, I think you get to the same place as she does here. I do like the discussion of flat versus round characters. Do you want to talk more about that? or? Yeah, I can talk about that. So she says that like Eliza is like a flat character. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she, she has a very limited purview of what she could experience, talk about things like that. But it doesn't really break immersion, because as long as you're willing to talk about you know how hot it is <laughs> uh, Eliza is like very good at it right or if you're willing to like talk about your father or something like that right um, Eliza is very good at that like small universe or constellation of terms um, but when we want round characters what she's saying are like characters that have some sort of inner psychology to them that will respond to certain key phrases with certain things so if you say Um, you, you know, to some, to leotard, it's weirdly enough, one of the the bots that she talks (laughs) about. But if you say to leotard, you say, Oh, I hate postmodernism. He'll go postmodernism is great. (laughs) Right. He'll have an opinion on that. But with an opinion and with a kind of psychology comes a higher burden of proof as to, uh, what a real response is right so right. she just says that there's a friction that happens with those rounder characters that you don't have with flat ones and video games for the most part have skipped all this by just pre-writing everything and then curtailing your responses uh, i mean you don't in 99.999 percent of contemporary video games you don't even have the ability to type anything in right it's all pre-arranged
0: so right. we don't this is like a non-issue right i would say like and she talks about this um in her 2016 updates but like sort of the best realization of the things she talks about here is um emily short's piece of interactive fiction galatea yeah, um yeah. which is like presented as just a long conversation with a single npc uh and um sort of like having a back and forth with her uh and uh you know, like, that's the story is, is like, the way that you learn about her and uh, the world that you are, I guess, implicitly inhabiting together, um, based on the conversation that you have.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's, in some ways, that's cheating, right? (laughs) Uh, Because, right, Emily Short comes out of the uh, interactive fiction community, like the experimental interactive fiction community, she's been doing a huge amount of work for what, 15 20 years yeah like an immense amount of time she's in conversation with the same mit crowd that that uh murray is pulling like this kind of generalized information from you know the experimental people working there um and so in some ways it's like yeah that fulfilled the promise because she is in the same group of people who are right. all trying to implement the,
0: <laughs> the set of solutions, right? So, right, and also it's like, it's it's one thing and the entire story is about talking to this one character. So yeah. it has not been, like, we do not have a a game that is full of Galateas, right? Um, exactly.
1: Uh, and it's worth, like, I encourage everyone, please go, like, look at Emily Short's work. It is right, fascinating yes. and brilliant and truly, like, form-pushing um, in in
0: a lot of ways yeah um yeah so i mean that's like that's the chapter on npcs and dialogue and chatbots, uh and then we move into as i said this is where the book gets a little odd because now we're going to talk about digital tv and emerging formats of cyber drama great um, yep and uh it, i mean it's it's there on the tin uh this chapter is about digital tv um she anticipates the smartphone by quoting um what's his face the guy who predicts that there are going to be smartphones i can't remember his name but that computer scientist who basically says uh in the 80s i think like you know you know you want my vision of the future uh a telephone a tv and a computer are all going to become the same thing uh and she basically takes that idea and she's like what would the world look like if if this were true um and so she imagines uh, um, basically TV dramas that extend beyond the the TV set. Uh, and she calls this, uh, instead of serial fiction or like a serial television series, she calls it hyper serial. Um, and I believe you said uh, in your notes that this seems like hell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it
1: does, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea of, so this is, this is I think, a critical part of this. She, in all of the kind of fabulation of the future that she does, she does not ever get to social media. Mm-hmm. Like, she never anticipates, and this is not her fault, like, I, like this is not a critique of of, right. of, of the argument. Like, but she never gets to a place where she's, she's like, oh, shit, people might all be connected all the time talking about the things that they enjoy. Mm -hmm. Like she still believes that there's like a private sphere in this future. And there's just, there's just not right. Like in the sense of when you voice for most people who are involved in social media, my opinion about a TV show I'm watching and my social media opinion about that are in a spectrum with one another. And if I have an opinion on castle rock or whatever, um, I'm probably going to tweet about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because like, I'm interested in what other people have to say about it. I want to have a conversation about it, things like that. And so, in a world where we have that, we have that now, Mm -hmm. if we had the ability together to truly transform the TV show, Mm -hmm. that seems to me to be the worst of both worlds. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And I'll say this, too. That is, in fact, how
0: Westworld works, right? Uh, like. We we transform how the TV show works. Well, so the the
1: the creators of Jonathan Nolan and the 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 other person, um, I'm I'm forgetting her name, but the yeah. co-creators of that show and the writing team have talked multiple times about writing that show and then reading the
0: Reddit in order to inform the way that they are writing that yeah. show. It's Lisa Joy, is her name? Lisa Joy. Um, Lisa um, Joy and yeah, Jonathan Nolan. Also, yes. Okay, this is fascinating because. Uh, this is, this is Homestuck. I don't know what you know (laughs) about Homestuck, right? it is
1: Homestuck. I I know enough to know that, yeah, this is Homestuck.
0: (laughs) Right, but this is, so Homestuck, for those who are listening who don't know it, was, um, a a web comic, kind of in a limited use of that term, um, created by a, a guy named Andrew Hussey that ran for, like, seven years and ended two or three years ago, and it is, the less i say about it the better because it is just madness um i was there from the beginning i read the whole thing i could talk i could have a podcast about homestuck for some reason because all this stuff is still in my brain um well if you want to launch a podcast (laughs) with michael about homestuck maybe we'll
1: do it maybe we'll do it as a sequel because i know about it but i've never read it oh god so that could that could be a fun
0: anyway we'll, we'll pocket that so anyway um homestuck uh Branched off of MS Paint Adventures, which was an earlier kind of uh, gag that um, Andrew Hussey did, where he would draw a kind of like uh, adventure, like a screen of an adventure game, um, and post it on a forum, and then be like, you know, this is a thing that um, is common on certain forums. He started, I think, on the Penny Arcade forum. Uh, he posts the screen, and then it's kind of like, okay, what do I do? And then the first person who responds to uh, the post chooses what happens next, and he has to draw it. And then that's how that's how the narrative progresses. Um, and by the time Homestuck started, uh, Hussie had uh, so many readers that he couldn't just do the first thing. Um, and eventually, after a while, he had in the in the in the comic a meteor hit the character's house and blew up the input box that readers were using to control the story um and from that point on what he did uh was he would read the forums when people were like speculating and creating fan theories and he would incorporate the fan theories that he liked uh and the plot uh very very quickly escalated into um just the most amazingly bizarre inside baseball that you can imagine because it was like literally every person's theory uh, was being like pulled into the grand man- meta narrative <laughs> so uh yeah, and in in response to uh, your comment, yes, it was hell, right? Reading yeah, home, I mean... <laughs> reading Homestuck and dealing with other people reading Homestuck was hell. Like it was the worst because everyone was like, "Oh, I hate this character," and I really love this character, and people were like waging all-out war on each other on the forums over where uh, who, which characters should be romantically involved and which ones shouldn't, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, no, it was bad. It was real bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, weird yeah, because right? it was like, very formative for me but it was bad <laughs> yeah the,
1: the because like the the blue skies version right the the full utopian horizon version is like this will finally allow for the most fulfilling story possible but the the nightmare scenario and, and maybe this is the difference between what murray is pushing and like the reality of how it happened Murray kind of wants to see a singularized version of that, like you get to experience your good Homestuck, right? But in reality, I have to experience everyone else's good Westworld, right. which is not my good Westworld,
0: <laughs> right? My bad I, think, Westworld. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that's your point about her not anticipating social media and kind of the connectedness because her vision for um, interactive television is absolutely a kind of um, like. Every person who watches Westworld has their own version of Westworld that is suited to them based on, like, where they are interested in seeing that story go.
1: And there are inter- there are cool things that, that have dealt with this, right? So uh, Quantum Break, I don't know if you, the Remedy game that came out a couple years ago.
0: I'm not um, that familiar with
1: it. So it's, it's like, it has like 30 minute TV episodes starring okay. like Sean Astin and <laughs> Littlefinger from Game of Thrones. I don't remember that, carchetti <laughs> whatever his name is. Yeah. Um. And they're like, it's like a TV episode. And then like you play a game and then there's more TV to it. Like it, it's a, a personalized film television experience for the most part. And then like War Games, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh oh help me really quick, the guy who made her story. Oh God um Sam Barlow Sam yeah Sam Barlow I I could I was sorry sorry yeah. Sam um, <laughs> but uh, but he made war games, which is like not hyper interactive, but the idea is that when you watch it you can there are multiple screens and you can mm-hmm. choose which screen you want to watch at one time and that has a bearing on like what plot you get out of it and that feels like what she's saying. Uh, as opposed to something like Defiance that came out a few years ago that had a sci-fi TV show and a video game that released at the same time. And it was kind of meant to be like a seasonal video game mm-hmm. uh, in that, like, it's open world and kind of MMOE, and what happened in the game would be reflected on the next season of the TV show. Yeah. Uh, except the TV show got canceled, so <laughs> it didn't work out. But, but that seems to be a, a little out of her purview. But I will say none of these are successful.
0: Mm-mm. As far as I know,
1: Quantum Break, I don't think did very well. I don't think that War Games did very well in Defiance. Right. Uh, every part of it got canceled. So, right.
0: Well, yeah. I will say something. Here's my hot take on this. Um, oh. What she did not anticipate is that it is far more interesting to people generally to quibble about canon than it is to uh, build their own. Yes, 100%. Right? Like, it's much more interesting for people to have a story that they can, like, debate about or, like, disagree about or whatever, or, like, interpret sort of, like, in parallel um, than it is, because that's the social aspect, right? (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, Uh, the Aegon part of it, the contestation part of it, people enjoy more. And maybe we should know that based on, like, you know, I don't know, thousands of years of biblical exegesis that have dominated (laughs) the Western paradigm. You know, I don't know, just just spitballing here. But that seems to be an important part of... Uh, the The media production of the culture that she is writing about a basic part of that culture is fighting over
0: the meaning of canonical texts like that is a thing mm-hmm. so I don't know yep. So that's the chapter on digital TV and emerging formats of cyber drama. She has this odd ending line where she says the coming digital story form like the novel or the movie will encompass many different formats and styles, but will essentially be a single distinctive entity. Um, I'm not sure about that exactly, uh, because, again, like I think that's casting for a kind of singularity uh, that. On the one hand doesn't really exist in this book because we're as we've already said sort of like waffling between narrative and like computational media um but also i am not sure if like if a single thing is going to emerge like the thing about so her her argument right is that um in in the broadest sense is that uh computers change the way we think about and interact with narrative right okay cool Mm -hmm. um this does not necessarily mean that something new has been invented or rather like what seems to have happened is that it has become almost parasitic on various other types of media
1: yeah i 100% agree because i even reading this and thinking like all right well to be as charitable as possible to the argument and, and you know did it happen Um, And so one thing I thought was like, oh, well, maybe it's because like, say, in the United States, which is, of course, the framework that I'm the most familiar with in the United States, accessibility to uh, like broadband Internet in your home is still fairly low. Mm -hmm. Like there are huge chunks of the United States where that's just not, you know, you either get like uh, satellite Internet or you have to tether a phone or something like that. And so maybe the, the structure, you know, it's a structural problem. A platform problem, an infrastructure mm-hmm. problem. Maybe it's just not there. But then I think, like, oh well, you know, South Korea—that's a mm-hmm. place that has, you know, nationally made a strong effort over the last twenty years to increase, you know, to have maximal, as far as I'm aware, access to internet connectivity and a hugely dominant paradigm there for media production and consumptions, like the K-drama, right—the Korean mm-hmm. soap opera kind of thing. The and. It's, it's basically the same thing. Like, it's, it's the same format as the telenovela or the soap opera or everything else, but it has a massive parasitic, like you're saying, a parasitic apparatus of forum and social media and ancillary celebrity culture and purchase mm-hmm. opportunities and things like that. Like, it does seem like the computational aspect is purely additive, uh, and it's additive based on the culture that's around it, but I don't think it's transformed. Like, I, as far as I'm aware, and someone please correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, the the K-drama is not all about, like, choose-your-own-adventure kind of stuff, right?
0: Like my, yeah, I was going to say, I'm not the most familiar with K-drama, but that's not my understanding of how those stories work, right? Yeah. It's I mean, about... you go
1: and follow your, your favorite star on Twitter, right? Right. Um,
0: right that multi-form narrative ends up being um like speculating about what's going to happen in the narrative of the fictional world first of all but also like branching out into the star and their life and sort of their adventures and the other things that they do
1: yeah yeah there's there's a real not taking seriously in in this book in general that narrative is structural and it and its content is important, but its content is important in how it connects to a person. Mm-hmm. Um and there's a real overlooking of the fact that a lot of people connect to narrative because of things that have nothing to do with that narrative. Right. <laughs> like people go see Tom Cruise movies because it's Tom Cruise movies. I certainly watch a lot of movies that have the rock in it because the rock is in it. Like I'm not going to go watch San Andreas <laughs> right. uh, other than the rock being in it, for example. Right. It's right. not the narrative of a man heroically overcoming an earthquake. That's not what I'm in it for. Right.
0: <laughs> so there's something involved there that, that gets missed here right and so finally at long last this takes us to the closing chapter um the sort of summary chapter of the reflective chapter chapter 10 hamlet on the holodeck um and she says uh will the stories brought to us by the new representational technologies mean anything that's like in quotes in the same way that shakespeare's plays mean something or will they be and she quotes shakespeare here told by an idiot (laughs) (laughs) This, that's, uh, for, yes. that's for macbeth um yep nope, yep so and faulkner who she who she brings up too right right yeah no she ended the last chapter on faulkner um so uh and yachna county and things like that so uh yeah uh she asks are these are these stories going to mean anything and my response to that question is like well yes um i don't think Mm -hmm. i don't think like something really strange would have to happen to society for us to just like produce generations of stories that don't mean anything (laughs) Um, (laughs) there would have to be like a world shattering event right um and i guess this is where i think this is really maybe where she talks the most about shakespeare and kind of this this uh the title conceit of Hamlet on the holodeck, right? She says in trying to imagine, well, well, hold on, let me interrupt you really quickly. Okay. okay,
1: Very important here that we have made it this far without Mm a, we're at the last chapter of the book. (laughs) Only now is Hamlet on the holodeck, like being fulfilled
0: right no she talks about a hamlet larp back in like chapter two or something yeah um but that's 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 as much real shakespeare as we've gotten um (laughs) uh or like anything sort of related to this title conceit which is a great like title right like it's Mm -hmm. wonderful marketing um but then it's here it is at the end. In trying to imagine Hamlet on the deck, then, I am not asking if it is possible to translate a particular Shakespeare play into another format. I am asking if we can hope to capture in cyber drama something as true to the human condition and as beautifully expressed as the life that Shakespeare captured on the Elizabethan stage. Okay. Um... There's a lot yes. of assumptions built into that, huh? I mean, there, there are lots of assumptions, yes. Uh, and I, again, sort of my answer here is like, yeah, of course we can use, like, technology and digital media to, uh, to like, tell cool and interesting and meaningful stories. And I think part of it, uh, for, for Mary at least, right, is she's writing in the mid-90s when um, people aren't really sure what to do with all of this digital technology and there still has to be a case made for it being useful, um or in some way like narratively important but also as you say right there's a lot of um there's a lot of assumptions being built in here about like what shakespeare does who shakespeare is the kind of work that he uh created because like first of all like you can't really say that like shakespeare was setting out to uh capture the beautiful expressions of the human condition um like, you know, first and foremost, like, what we know historically is he was a businessman. Uh, he was part of this theater company, and, you know, he, he wrote plays that brought people into the theater. Um, but sort of second of all, uh, Shakespeare captures the human condition for a very particular segment of the human population, I would say.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you think that—and I, I don't think that she is saying, like— right there's an unmediated direct connection to like shakespeare's time like that that's not that's not how i'm constructing this argument but i think that if you think that like the merchant of venice is giving us like a accurate portrayal of a time and a place right then then you are you're skipping some steps, maybe I should mm-hmm. say, right? I, I think certainly ideologically, it's giving us a great image of what a time and a place were and like how people thought about, say, Jewishness, mm-hmm. uh, how they thought about money, uh, right. you know, and how they thought about the intersection of those two things, how racism functioned, all these different uh, important contexts. But you, in order to do that work and to think that that is giving us, us that perspective, you have to do a whole lot of work to unpack that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's not any suggestion in the rest of this book about the mode of reception that unpacks things. Yeah. Like, there is not—and maybe this is the the part where I read my, my, like, truly mind-blowing, I-can't-believe-this-is-in-this-book statement. Okay. Which, at the very beginning of this chapter—this is a quotation— Okay. Narrative beauty is Mm. independent of medium— And the argument, I think like, I don't think it's a stretch to say that that also entails that narrative beauty is narrative beauty. Like this is an essential platonic from the heavens, capital T truth Mm -hmm. that then instantiates itself in different places. I don't agree with that model of narrative of thinking about narrative and what it does.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, absolutely, absolutely not. Right. This is taking narrative beauty as an end in of itself, uh, which even if you wanted to do that, right, there's a uh, there are necessarily going to be politics that are going to attach to that kind of aestheticism, um, and yeah, like like sure, narrative is a thing that happens in multiple media, um, and people like narratives in many different media. Uh, but that isn't to say that narrative beauty is independent of media, because I think, I think if that were true, right, it would be very easy to take something that we think is a beautiful narrative, and just because it's here, right, let's take Hamlet, um, and then make a, a video game out of it that tells the exact same story, and it's it's just as beautiful, right? And that's absolutely not the case. <laughs> yeah. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning, right, the one of the functions um that Shakespeare and Hamlet are serving here uh, is kind of uh, a convenient sort of way of pointing backward and saying, like, here is where the art form came together and matured, right? This is the high water mark, which again ignores uh, as you said, um, the fact that like media change, right? So Shakespeare, um, she says at one point, like, Shakespeare uh, you know, creates Hamlet as the culmination of revenge tragedy. And this is a very common argument, or rather was a very common argument, uh, maybe about 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, which it, when it was very much like still okay to be like, yes, well, Shakespeare, because we all know he is a genius... Um, who perfected possibly everything you could do with literature uh, of course he he took the elizabethan genre of revenge tragedy and he made the best possible revenge tragedy you could make and then it was over right um well really he, he shakespeare writes hamlet um about maybe eight to 10 years after the uh, genre kind of really gets its start when Thomas Kidd uh, writes this play called The Spanish Tragedy, um, which is a fun time, by the way. If you're looking for a non-Shakespearean play to read, go read The Spanish Tragedy. A whole lot of death in that. Uh, Anyway, Shakespeare, you know, about 10 years later, uh, you know, participates in this thriving little subgenre and writes a play that is called Hamlet that is, probably pretty good um the textuality of hamlet gets very complicated here but nevertheless to act like he culminated the genre right that he like fixed it and like finished it with hamlet ignores the fact that uh people kept writing revenge tragedies for another 30 years and they are Mm -hmm. very different from hamlet right (laughs) are they better than hamlet uh it depends on what you're looking for, right? For instance, the Duchess of Malfi sometimes gets classified as, as a kind of revenge hmm. play, um, hmm. and I really, really like the Duchess of Malfi. Um. <laughs> I also wonder, like,
1: too, like, there becomes a, this is why you know at the very beginning of this and throughout, I've been kind of pushing on reception because like Hamlet survived and it survived because of you know very particular contingent qualities and things that happened, right? Like hmm. folios are produced and things like that, um, but. Like, I mean, you. I think we have to begin asking questions about like how many people saw it, how influential is it in the sense mm-hmm. of like how many people are directly responding to it as opposed to like responding to a big cluster of things that you're pointing to. Like all of those right. things seem very important to me
0: when we talk about like the the landing of a particular text. Right, and that's that's where things get very complicated, especially with Shakespeare, um, because in his particular moment. Um, like the things, for instance, that I, w- I would say, and, you know, there may be some other early modernists listening who will uh, correct me on this. Um, but my sense of it um, is that the the plays that most people are talking about uh, that Shakespeare is writing sort of in the moment, like the things that people talk about sort of more than usual, right, more than saying like, oh, I saw this play um, uh, are the history plays. Right, those are the mm-hmm. things that Pete that tend to like come up again in people's conversations in the other plays that other writers are producing. Um, these are the like those are the plays that are, become like noticeable as like oh this this character in this other play is obviously parodying, um Henry the Fifth, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and that's not to say that there is no Hamlet, right, in the moment. Um, but uh, in terms of, like it seems. Hamlet seems a little more inside baseball, right? Hamlet instantiates a kind of character type of um the sort of like the revenger who is supposed to kill someone, uh but also like has these like philosophical asides, which even even Horonimo, who is the the revenger in um the Spanish tragedy, he has like this sort of, you know, thinking like, "Oh, is it right for me to take revenge? Like what happens to my soul?" All that sort of stuff. Um, but Hamlet makes that kind of, he, Hamlet is very weird as a character um, because he will have those moments and then he will like uh, run around the stage screaming while pulling down his pants because he's pretending to be insane. Hieronimo mm-hmm. is also pretending to be insane, but he doesn't do it like Hamlet. Hamlet does it in this way where he like counterpoises like uh, sort of tragic and comedic conventions for acting um, in a way that uh, is very, very odd. Uh, and sort hmm. of like what makes that character maybe more unique.
1: And what could have been uh, the product of writing for a particular actor or an acting troupe, right? Which we right. know is, is part of like the uh, the circulation that's around or the context that's around Shakespeare writing that, right? And right. that's not, it, it just troubles the, the the great work or
0: the culmination, right? right? When it's like, oh, it's really fun. People love it when that dude pulls his pants down. Right, so, and so what's going to do it? Yeah, and so she says, you know, like what Hamlet does is it takes the theater um, and it, Shakespeare, um, makes the soliloquy, right? This, like, soliloquies had existed before, but they were just used for uh, the the villain to, like, turn to the audience and be like, oh, and now here's all of the evil stuff I am going to do, and now just watch. Basically, like, this parody of Richard the III, um, Shakespeare's Richard the III, um, but... This and this is this in and of itself is an old argument in in sort of traditionalist Shakespeare criticism, right? That he creates. Um basically the he uses the soliloquy to uh, create the idea of the modern individual, right, as sort of self reflexive. The way that Harold Bloom puts it is that mm-hmm. the thing that Shakespeare's characters do that no other characters on the early modern stage do is when they talk, they hear themselves, right? They respond to the things that they are saying. And not in like an like in a conscious way, but like they will be in the middle of a statement and they will change train change their train of thought because they realize that they like something has occurred to them Mm -hmm. now the problem with this right is that like of course other characters do this occasionally right (laughs) it's just because uh like uh we have an unusually high number of Shakespearean plays preserved that we can look to all of the places where it actually happens. And also because um, Shakespeare seems to have genuinely be interest, been interested in staging characters in this way. Um, in, so for instance, like his, some of his contemporaries like Ben Jonson, who uh, wrote primarily comedies, um, isn't as interested in it, right? Because he's much more um, concerned with like, not having characters reflect on themselves, but like doing wacky things. So, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a very interesting kind of capstone to this because we pull in Shakespeare, we pull in Hamlet to talk about where media could go. He's they are both held up as kind of like uh, the the culminations of various things, right? Of artistic sort of individuality of of whatever medium they're working in, and at the same time, the very idea that this sort of thing happens that media mature or come into their own in this way is just totally a retroactive like fiction. Yeah. And so it's weird (laughs) to use that as a predictive force. Right. Um, Hmm. So yeah, I just like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't really know what to do with that because I think as a, as a model for thinking about where media are going to go, it's just not that useful. It might be a useful way for like looking back on history and like pulling out a narrative from sort of the chaos of the past, <laughs> um, but it's not necessarily like, you know, we're we're not going to know the Shakespeare of this time now, right? It cannot happen. The people like people like Shakespeare certainly, but um, it wasn't until. Uh, you know, a good hundred, hundred and fifty maybe years after that people were like, oh, but Shakespeare was a genius, right? Before then, mm-hmm. Shakespeare was considered like very smart, very talented, but he was formally messy. <laughs> hmm. And then it's the Romantics, uh, really, who um, maybe this is another part of her Victorianist uh, uh, training. Actually, it's the Romantics who kind of go back, and they're like, "Well, because Shakespeare is so messy, that means he's closer to the truth of human life because mm-hmm. he's not um, observing all of these dramatic conventions about uh, how many, how many, how many locations there are in the play. Um, because what, like, what? Prior to then, uh, like a thing that playwrights loved to do was go through and correct Shakespeare, which sounds like blasphemy to us. Um, but this was what you did, is you took Shakespeare's messy play and you like cut the subplots you thought were stupid. Um, you added comic relief scenes in places where they made sense. Like You fixed them, because Shakespeare was called a natural genius, which natural here means uh, essentially unlearned, right? Mm-hmm. Like he wandered in from the forest. <laughs> a, a, a pure commoner. Yes. <laughs> um, who who hit good stuff. Well,
1: right. uh, yeah, so I think that's our general chapter-by-chapter chapter breakdown. And I think, I mean, we're already pretty long. I, mean, I know, get
0: I know. Oh, oh my I, you know
1: what? I think that we just, I think that if you listen to this, you're on board. For yeah.
0: for for a long I'm thing. Sorry. Um, I'm no, sorry. I'm sorry. I just have so many thoughts about this book. <laughs> I no, I think
1: we both we we both had uh passionate beliefs about the thing, and I think that's okay. I think people can break it up or do whatever they want to do. Um and you know, some of this will get edited out. But um I think that an important thing to do, we didn't really have time to do it last time except for one question, but I'm gonna kinda like bullet, you know, machine gun through the questions that we got about this book in particular to you, Michael, and you okay. can give me your two sentence answer. Cause I think a lot of them actually are, are dressed in kind of different ways uh, during the show already. So, yeah. All right. So this is Matthew Gustial. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing anyone's name. Uh, but uh, Matthew asks, I'm sure uh, you'll get to it, but looking for... Oh, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me start this over. I'm sure to get to it, but looking forward to how y'all engage with the book's notion of a Shakespeare of digital media. Uh, <laughs> it's not really a question, but Michael, is there a Shakespeare of digital media? What does that look like to you?
0: Uh, the Shakespeare of digital media is Drill. The user, <laughs> the, the Twitter account, at Drill. Like, that's the Twitter... Like, I don't know. Seriously, um... Everything that I just said I think applies here, right? It's like you don't know the Shakespeare of uh, of the moment. Like, you can't do that because Shakespeare was pulled out of history retroactively as the person who perfected the medium, right? Mm-hmm. No one recognized him in his moment as doing that. He was just like – it would be like saying Steven Spielberg invented film, right? Mm-hmm. He was someone who was very good at what he did, who was successful at it, but, like, the person who sort of, like, perfected it, absolutely not, <laughs>
1: john brindle uh, says slash asks uh to what extent have the book's predictions and hopes for hypertext and interactive
0: fiction as an artistic medium been fulfilled unfulfilled or twisted since then um so uh this is interesting because uh in terms of hypertext uh Murray associates that with postmodernism, and she is, as we have established, not very hot on that. Nevertheless, uh, I feel like post or postmodernism. Um, I think actually hypertext is the way that most people now approach IF rather than uh, straight up like uh, parser fiction or something like that. There's an accessibility to hypertext, contrary to kind of what uh, Murray is suggesting, um, especially with the advent of things like Twine. Uh, I don't think anything, nothing that I can think of off the top of my head uh, is kind of doing what she does with this idea, which is basically like, what if MUDs, that is to say multi-user dungeons, um, basically like a sort of LARPing chat rooms, um, what if MUDs, but even more? Uh, I don't think mm-hmm. any any sort of IF project that I'm aware of is uh, undertaking that. Um, so I don't know yeah and this is like also too something we didn't talk about right
1: is that she she only has access to the idea of the mud this is before the mmo right this is before right. everquest oh, I this is before that, yeah. world of warcraft all that kind of stuff too um which i would argue went the other way they're much much more constricting in what you can do
0: and how you interact with the world than muds are uh, right i would well actually so. i was actually going to say the like one thing that she didn't um you know foresee in addition to the mmo is the way that like the instance works yeah. right like the yeah. idea of like this world isn't dead is like for her she imagines kind of um interactive fiction or a mud uh that is constantly changing constantly dynamic constantly moving forward um whereas like as we know mmos have built in instances of repopulating dungeons uh to kind of like maintain something like a normal gameplay loop. So things are not just like constantly changing. And also because, so you can fight the boss too, right? Because once the boss is dead, like what are you, what else are you supposed to do?
1: Yeah. And also, so I just looked it up to Ultima online comes out in 1997 as well. So she's right there on the cusp of the thing that's going to, you know, start the ball rolling on a different trajectory and, you know, she just doesn't see it for whatever reason. Um, uh jason Hor harreliak Hr- Hr- L- i can't uh, jason i know, I know. how I to say your name I've and i can't read it <laughs> well no i know how to say it i just my wre i just cannot make that that uh that noise uh oh, okay. <laughs> that sound that's all me but jason uh, asks should undergraduate game design slash media
0: theory students read this in 2018 is it still useful um i would say probably excerpt the chapter on uh on additive and expressive form because that is the chapter that uh comes closest to kind of laying out a theory of digital media and what those things can do um and as cameron suggested i think it can be good for inciting debate about uh you know to what extent are these properties actually properties like to what extent does this actually work um the other parts of the book Maybe not so much except for sort of historical interest, right? If you are having a sort of higher-level class um, where you want to talk about things like uh, um, predictions for history and then like the ways things turn out completely the opposite or not quite what you expected. And uh, when you're trying to do theory, or not really theory, right? But when you're um, doing kind of academic speculation in this grand manner, um, I think there could actually be something very useful in that, uh, in having a class that's entirely about, here are all the things that people have said about digital media and game studies uh, that just didn't pan out. <laughs> and like, what do we learn from that?
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that assessment. Follow up question though, which episode of The Next Generation should students go watch to go with the reading?
0: Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, I'm going to write... I'm going to type in TNG holodeck episodes real quick <laughs> to refresh my memory. I haven't probably seen all of them, mm-hmm. um, but I have seen a couple. Uh, I mean, the one that I always think of, right, is... Uh, the picard uh hard-boiled noir one and i don't even remember why i always think of it i just really like i just like patrick stewart i think i really like picard as a character and i love the way he embodies like the sam spade hard-boiled detective what is that called it's called the big goodbye okay um so i don't really even remember anything that happens in that other than picard is very cool but see the big goodbye and well have them watch the big goodbye and see how it works out (laughs) there you go
1: i don't know any of these so sure okay I believe it. Um, uh, Derek Price asks, how do we think about Murray's idea of the hollow novel with more recent theories of affect and embodiment in regard
0: to games? So I think one of the things that is interesting about, uh, one of the things that Murray does with sort of the, the idea of the hollow novel, um, is she's trying to work, uh, games generally away from uh, sort of simple uh like good bad end states right like you won the game or you lost the game or what have you um she's more interested in uh games that uh could have multiple valid endings um, and you don't necessarily feel like compelled to go and get the other ending which Cameron and I talked about that's not kind of not how this is played out right everyone wants to see every ending and sort of debate which one is the true one and which one is better however um, one thing that I did notice or sort of think about as I was uh, reading um, especially on this issue of affect, uh, is that there are games or sort of stories within games uh, that strive more toward affective resonance uh, than any sort of, like, notion of, like, winning or losing. So, like, the, the of course, great example of this would be Gone Home, um, which is all about uh, sort of using the, the tropes of the first-person shooter uh, and sort of the environmental uh, storytelling that we've come to expect from that genre uh, to incite and manage like player anxiety about not knowing what's going on and then delivering um, this really like intense moment of catharsis when you realize like, oh, all of like the way that that game works um, still sticks in my mind, right? Because every character basically has every character in that game that you encounter or not really encounter, but that you know about is heading for disaster. <laughs> like hmm. something bad is getting ready to happen to everyone. Um, and then everything comes together at the end and you realize, like oh my god mom and dad are just like on a trip together right they're trying to fix their marriage um and i oh my god i can't remember her name but my little sister my little sister is okay she ran away with her girlfriend to have have a better life right and in a world where um you know that couldn't understand her and um the relationship that they were going to have uh as as it was um and When I think about that, right, for one, it very much affected me. And sort of uh, secondly, almost every discussion of that game is about its effective payload, Mm -hmm. right? About that moment of release, of like, oh, that's what's happening, right? I finally understand. And um, to some extent, like Fulbright's follow up game of Tacoma is similar, right? These characters are all heading toward disaster. um, And uh, then you find out, like, Exactly, actually, how things worked. Um, so, I think to some extent, right, that is is something that speaks to Murray's idea of the hollow novel. At the same time, she would very, I think, as she's thinking about it in this book, it would be hollow novels would have multiple endings. But notably, the two examples that I've come up with are. Uh, very highly structured stories with single endings.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. In in some ways. And I mean, the way they got talked about, you know, Ian Bogost was very, or was read as being very dismissive of gone home when it came out. And I think the piece probably is dismissive, but um, not probably it's a dismissive piece. (laughs) It calls it young adult literature. Um, But in, I think part of the critique that he was leveraging of it is that, yeah, it's like, you know, we were promised the moon, and we got, like, a short story. Like, a well-written, good short story in that game. And I like that mm-hmm. game. I think that game is very good. I think right. that game is is excellent. I think Tacoma's really good, too. That And people, for whatever reason, didn't uh, latch onto That's it. People can to talk word.
0: about Tacoma more, too. There's a lot of good
1: stuff in Tacoma. Maybe we can read, like, a good... Maybe we'll read a book about, like, science fiction and games. Because yeah. there's a couple that have come out recently, and we can talk about Tacoma in that. Um, okay, good. People should play that game, for sure. Um, but, I mean, you know, that... This was, I think, the the, chari- the most charitable way of reading Ian's piece is to say that what he is saying is that, you know, we were given, we thought that video game narrative would go in so many places. And what we got is just a well-executed short story. And that's so, like, I don't. I wasn't promised the moon, right? Like, right. I didn't read this in 1997. I read this in 2008, <laughs> when when after the ship had sailed, as we've talked about a couple times. Um, so, so maybe that's it. You know, maybe maybe that's part of it, right? That the at the end of the day, the well-executed traditional narrative, as far as like structurally traditional narrative, is just as fulfilling, like on an effective level. Um, you know, it it clicks all the right Spinozan buttons. Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's the good FX or whatever. Um, it it does that enough that that um, the formal experimental changes that Murray wanted just aren't necessary, right, um, for fulfillment, right. I guess we knew that already because we like movies and novels, so <laughs> right. Uh, in some ways, right, like there's a question of a big, broad question, especially in relationship to affect, right, of if if it's not broke, don't fix it um, in the sense of what I was saying earlier, too. If the feelies feel good and they're rad and everyone likes them, then there is not a strong incentive to change that because right. it's already working. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very deep in the affect literature, and I know that you are as well, and, and kind of like the philosophical tradition behind it. And the watchword of Spinoza on down is, or maybe not watchword, but the, the consistency of that is that affect kind of moves like water. It's the path of least resistance always, mm-hmm. um, both positively and negatively. Um, It is, if there is a vital force that rides beneath all of these different things, then it is going to move in such a way that it benefits things that are already working, rather than things that don't. Affect doesn't like a stoppage, it likes a continuance. Last question, you ready for it? Okay. D'Alessena, is there a moment when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern could have said, computer, freeze program?
0: i uh think this is an excellent question because uh it is answered by tom stoppard's play rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead um the answer is no <laughs> <laughs> never 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 rosencrantz and guildenstern have always already existed as people who are being pulled into someone else's story it's unfortunate it's very sad but there you have it R.I.P. In the parlance
1: of the internet. <laughs> um, all right, thanks so much, everybody, for listening to this episode. Uh, you know what? I think we're just going to keep adding an hour every episode <laughs> until oh, it's like a nine-hour uh, endurance uh, experience that's like bigger than than my web hosting will allow. But yeah, uh, no, this will this will get edited down to a more reasonable thing, but. You know what I think that if you're in for like a good game studies discussion then this is where we are like mm-hmm. if you want to talk about a whole book this is where we where we live so right That's okay. You can uh, see more stuff at rangedtouch.com. This is part of the Ranged Touch Media Network. Uh, Very importantly, um, due to some feedback that we got for the last episode, there will be a post there and it should be linked in the description of this episode if you're, say, looking at it on iTunes, uh, that will give you a list of references of all the things that we've talked about. I might not link to everything, uh, but I'll, you know, I'll give you uh, a link to the Spanish tragedy. Stuff like that um at range touch on twitter if you want to give us feedback or tell us how much you like it or if you don't like it um that's (laughs) that's rude don't don't give us any negative feedback uh no we we appreciate all feedback uh you can also rate us on itunes that would be super swell and this should be on google play by now uh this episode should be up on google play
0: I thought you meant like as we were speaking, and I was like, wow, that's a really quick production time.
1: Right now, it's all, always already there. <laughs> I love Derrida. Um, that's Batman, who loves Derrida, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you, also, you can also look at the in the description down below to go support us on Patreon. Uh, we're going to have some more information up about some additional Patreon rewards, if you really like the show. Uh, I think Michael and I are going to make our uh, notes available hmm f- for your own perusal uh if you yes. want to do that but it'll be up behind the
0: paywall yes and because it's ever, work yeah no it's it's a lot of work and believe me for as much as we say on this podcast there is so much more that goes into our notes <laughs> that we never touch on yeah yeah i have five pages of single space notes
1: uh, and i think you have about the same or even more
0: yeah, I think so, I have seven.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we, we there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't make it because it's only three hours. Um, and of course, you can uh, email us at Gmail, and this will be on the Range Touch website uh, if you need to find us there, a little contact thing. But games, studies, study buddies at gmail.com. That's it. Bye. You can find you can find me on Twitter <laughs> at c councilman uh, Michael. Where can they find you on Twitter?
0: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. Yeah, you got any you got any work coming up? Anything interesting you want to plug? Uh, not anything that I want to talk about right now. Although, <laughs> be assured, I am working on things.
1: So. Uh oh. Okay. Well, yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> you can find it. You can go talk to us on Twitter if you need to. All right. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it. We uh, like doing this. It's fun. And we're glad that we can keep doing it. Good Goodbye. Bye.